0: Not so not so jovial. No, I'm not so
1: jovial. I have a lot of anxiety. This is not this is I have a lot of anxiety. And I don't normally feel like that. But I do. I have a lot of anxiety about this. This is not this is very difficult for me. So, and there's also a strong likelihood that there's people that won't speak to me after this. So it's just this, I look, it is what it is. I always feel like somebody's watching me. Please don't mock this. This is serious. So, okay. So I wanted to come on before um, our guests come on and talk a little bit about why I'm doing this. Why now? Like what, what's really going on? So for the past 10 years, I have been really undergoing huge transformation in a lot of ways, but this very specific way. And so I wanna preface that with, I was born in North Miami Beach, second generation Jewish South Floridian. Um, by definition, we were Zionists. Like there, that, that that wasn't really, it almost wasn't present. it was like as much of an option as whether or not I was gonna to go to college was whether or not we were gonna support Israel. Like it was just a given. And um, I actually love Israel. I have been to Israel. And actually, I brought something that I wanted to show you guys because this is actually how personal this gets for me. So this. Can you guys see? Yeah. Okay, so this is a shirt that I have from when I was in Israel. It's an Israeli army shirt. It was considered contraband for me to even bring it back. I actually traded a walkman for it. I mean, granted, this was in 87. So, you know, it was it was a thing. But the, the man who I got this shirt from was like one of the kindest, gentlest, most beautiful people. His name was Ofair. I for the life of me would never remember his last name. And he was a kid like me. But anyway, so this is someone who was a friend, you know, and I just this is very hard. This is very hard. So for me, when I want to talk about looking at Israel in any sort of negative way, it's very difficult. There's been a cognitive dissonance for years. And I finally just couldn't keep doing the mental gymnastics around what's going on. And I've learned new facts. And so it's very important for me on this issue, because I feel like especially with a lot of my Jewish peers, that we were really misinformed. Um, Some of it purposeful, some of it just inadvertent, you know, like I don't think my grandparents purposely lied, but do I think that there were nefarious propagandists that were lying to them? Yeah. So so my my perspective is now obviously different. Um and so coming to this point has not been easy. And I've been here for a while and I'm somewhat ashamed to say that I just still wasn't willing to be public about it, um, not just for political ramifications, although that is a thing. And this very well could be the hill that I politically die on. Um, and if that's the case, that's the case. So that's something to me that I have to do for me. I've always wondered my whole life, if I was alive during um, slavery, during segregation, during you know the times when, it was a minority opinion speaking out against something that was an injustice. Would I have done that? And I'd always thought, yeah, of course I would. And really I haven't not enough. So that's, that's where I am now with this. And I've done a lot of research. And by the time I would say by this time next year, you can count on me to probably be one of the most educated people. And that's just the way I am. Like I'll go down rabbit holes. Like I will be the most educated person on this, but my fellow Jewish people, We have been misinformed. We weren't taught accurate history. We just weren't. We were taught Zionist talking points. um, And we were taught there was a land with no people for a people with no land. We've constantly conflated Judaism and Zionism. We have this thought that somehow there's a connection between post-Holocaust and the state of Israel in terms of that's why it's there. Um, That's where consent was hugely gained But that plan was in play a long time before, and it really had nothing to do with um, the Holocaust as to why this this started. But uh, we're gonna get into all that, but I just think it's very important that when people say, do you think Israel has a right to exist? I actually don't believe any country has a right to exist. I think people have rights and countries have obligations. So no, I don't think any country has the right to exist. And I've also come to accept this very basic fact, and I am begging people to understand this. You cannot have an ethnocracy and a democracy. You cannot have an ethno state without conducting an ethno cleanse. Those things cannot happen. And I, I just, people need to really understand that it's not, this is not just my opinion. And I, I don't, it, this is just the way it is. Uh, I also there's certain things that to me are just oxymorons and that's one of it. So either you support an ethnocracy and that's fine when we know all the facts and you hear what really happened and what's really going on and two levels of citizenship. And, you know, all the information and you say, you know what, it's still more important to me for the Jews to have a national homeland that is a national Jewish state. Okay, but you cannot claim it's a democracy. You have to accept that you are supporting an ethnocracy, which is really no different than a theocracy. And it's just something that we've grown to accept regarding the state of Israel. And um, it is very scary as a Jewish person to think, like, what would happen to Jews if it weren't for Israel? Because I've been programmed to think that. And anti-Semitism is very real, very real. And so the thought of what would happen to Jews if there's no Israel, like what what does that mean for us? it is very scary. Like the the threat is not unreasonable. It's not irrational. Like fear is very rational for Jewish people in this. It's not like a made up thing, but it doesn't justify what we're doing to an entire other group of people. So that's just where I am. But there's no logical conclusion between what we're doing is actually what's making us safer. I would argue it's making us less safe. Um, And it is definitely increasing levels of actual anti-Semitism, not just people that support BDS or people that dare to speak out about, you know, human rights and justice. But real anti-Semitism is a thing. So I think that when we throw that term around loosely, it's just it doesn't serve us. And I'm just tired of that. I'm tired of people like my representative not understanding What nuance is? What real history is? Why why is one group of people entitled by right to a piece of land? And the higher question is, where do we get our rights? See, as humans, humans, we get rights by or whatever our nation states grant us rights. So basically, we as humans come together in the United States, and we create a constitution, which is the authority, that authority is what gives us rights. So what let's say gives a country a right to exist? Where is that right from? So if, if the state of Israel has a right to exist, under what authority is that right? Because rights are granted by a higher source. That's, the def- that's what rights are. Um, they're not innate. So otherwise we, we wouldn't even need to call them rights. We would all just go about our lives and do whatever we want. So when you say something has a right, I'm curious, what is the authority? And regarding the state of Israel, the only thing I could think of would be international law, except for that Israel is in violation of international law to a level that is just off the charts and somehow we just keep excusing it. So if you're gonna claim a right by an authority, you probably need to also follow that authority. But anyway, again, I don't think that any countries have rights to exist. They exist at the pleasure of their citizenry and uh, is certainly a country that claims to be a democracy. So that is my whole intro spiel. I feel like I rambled and we're gonna get started. We're still waiting um, on one more person. And that's about it. That was my spiel. I
0: I think it's similar to, in many ways, I think the issue with anti-Semitism in the United States, which was on full display the other day with lunatic Kanye West, um,
1: now he actually it does very much appear to be anti-Semitic to me. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like I'm not, sure. yeah, not not um, hyperbolically. Like he really does.
0: And he's also that. and he's also dog whistling to a portion of the population that is equally as anti-Semitic. But one of the reasons why anti-Semitism is uh, you know what, what I would consider to becoming a hot button issue of, of this moment and continues to grow and grow is very similar to a lot of issues that we face in the economic structure that we see in our country today. You know, if you paid people enough to live, there wouldn't be a welfare state and the country would be happy. But instead, because corporations get to make the rules and no one ever <laughs> stands up to them the way that they should, We find ourselves in this, what is considered to be this sort of convoluted puzzle about how do we actually solve the problem. Truth is, you don't really know how to solve the problem other than making it worse by assuming that, well, if somebody's anti-Semitic, then they must be shamed, 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 or instead of asking the question, well, why is somebody anti-Semitic? Well. when a a particular population calls themselves the chosen people, there is naturally going to be a reaction from other people who will say, that's ridiculous and I don't agree. And we have over 4,000 religions on this planet. Odds are the one you believe in ain't right, probably none of them are right. But people are gonna believe what they're gonna believe. And anti-Semitism is very real because our ruling class makes it so that the hatred just continues to be brought down holy hell on people. So when I say, that the treatment of the Palestinian people is probably as a direct correlator in this time to the anti Semitism we feel here today, especially here in the United States. That is a correlated effect. And there are people who are just in total denial of that and don't want to admit that it plays a role. Now, if we were to address that, perhaps there would be a different opi- uh, uh, approach and a different opinion as such. So
1: I think we should just start. I think we should start. I think that's fine. And I just, I just, um, emailed the the rabbi and I'm waiting to hear back. But in the meantime, let's
0: start. Okay, so let's bring in our first guest and hopefully our second guest will join shortly thereafter. Professor Doug Rusanow is an author and professor of history at Metro State University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Twin Cities are lovely. His publications include The Politics of Authenticity, Liberalism, Christianity, and the New Left in America, 1998. Visions of Progress, The Left Liberal Tradition in America in 2007. And then Finally, the one that I, I know to now. Read.
1: He's gonna now he's gonna need to have him come back on to just for that.
0: The Reagan era, a history of the nineteen eighties, written in twenty fifteen. <laughs> and what a time that that book could have come out because that is really the inflection point of where politics really changed in America and are continuing to change every day. Doug Russo, welcome to generational change.
2: Uh, thanks. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Good day to both of you. Can you hear me okay?
1: Yeah, we can hear you. And do you pronounce your last your last name is Rossa now, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Did I say Rusenow? Yes, you oh, did. Sorry. Okay. Well, there's a family history there. There were people there who said it uh, Russa now, but uh, not for a long time.
1: Ah, interesting. Interesting. So I'm um, I'm thankful that you can come. I, I did see when I was like looking for people to invite to talk about this that, and I want to make sure that the website is current. But it was talking that you are currently researching history of Zionism.
2: Yes, um, that's right. And specifically Zionism in the United States uh, after 1948. Uh, and you know, I, I'm an historian of the United States. I'm an American historian. Um, Zionism, as you know, is an international movement, has been always, so the, uh, the American branch of that movement, I think, should be understood as part of this larger global uh, movement, but it also, of course, in the United States, uh, was very much shaped by the specific conditions uh, and, and traditions and experiences of American Jews. And so, yes, I, I have been doing a lot of research on this in recent years.
1: Yeah, it's really all very interesting to me because I think that there is this huge disconnect between the actual history of Zionism and the propaganda that has been consistently put out by that movement. And so I know that you focus on this country, but talk a little bit about like where where the Zionism started. I mean, I know we're talking about like Austria, late 1800s, something like that, and there's definitely... Um, a component where it was definitely based on um, rising anti-Semitism, but Mm -hmm. it certainly wasn't, it wasn't a 20th century situation. So would you just talk a little bit about like where this came from and why?
2: Sure. Um, And and of course I can preface this, uh, Jen, by responding to what you say about propaganda or whatever term you wish to use, you know, in Israel, um, my Hebrew is lousy, but uh, in Israel um, always there has been a term uh, Hasbara, uh, Hebrew term, that basically refers to propaganda or communications on behalf of the state of Israel. And in Israel, that's a, a very explicit discussion, and it always has been. In other words, people in Israel have always said that um, Israeli Jews, but also Jews outside of Israel, in the United States and elsewhere, ought to and have an obligation to engage in Hasbara and may participate in Hasbara on behalf of Israel. So in a certain way, the um, yeah, efforts to engage in, whether you wish to call it propaganda or public diplomacy or communications, uh, very explicit, very open. Now, one point of somewhat contested uh, communication is the idea that, that some people in the Zionist movement have always expressed which is that Zionism is not a new modern phenomenon, but rather it's always been inherent in Jewish religion because Jews at their Passover Seder will say next year in Jerusalem. And there's always been a tradition of Messianic Judaism that hopes for the restoration of what, you know, the Bible stories tell us was an ancient Judaic kingdom. Uh, in Eretz Israel or historic Palestine. Uh, and so s- some people in the Zionist movement have s- always said, well, this is just part of, of Judaism, the hope for the uh, formation or, as they would put it, the restoration of a Jewish kingdom or a Jewish state in uh, Eretz Yisrael. But as a matter of historical fact, you're correct that the Zionist movement arose in the late 19th century in Europe Uh, It started in Central Europe, just as you say, although it first gained a real mass base uh, further east, in Eastern Europe, where the Jewish population of Europe was concentrated in the Russian Pale of Settlement, what's now Poland, Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, and Western Russia. That was the heartland of European Jewry, Uh, and the conditions uh, that they lived on were highly discriminatory in all kinds of ways. So there was very strong sentiment in favor of Zionism in Eastern Europe. But the, the movement is often dated from the 1890s forward, started by uh, the Hungarian Jewish journalist Theodor Herzl. Uh, some people look to precursors before that in the late 19th century. But what we think of as the political Zionist movement that aimed at uh, acquiring land uh, that Jews would own. Uh, in what was then Ottoman, Palestine, and what later on after World War I became British, ruled Palestine, uh, with an eye toward eventually forming some some coherent uh, sovereign Jewish area. Uh, This really began in the 1890s, uh, and it was not in any way uh, universally embraced by Jews, far from that. anywhere, uh, but certainly including the United States, and for for some time, for decades in the United States, I would say up until the 1930s, Zionism was probably probably a minority tendency within uh, American uh, Jewry, although as in Europe, uh, in the United States, the strongest Zionists tended to be uh, Jews who had come from Eastern Europe, from the Pale of Settlement. They brought Zionism uh with them. Uh and and the the strength of zionism within American Jewish life grew and grew uh and it became markedly stronger starting in the 1930s uh with the uh, the discrimination against and the oppression of German Jews. Uh and I think a lot of people understand the basic outlines of the story. After that, uh I think there's a difference between the early Zionist um, activists who were they were really ideologues who believed that anti-Semitism was such a horrible problem in the world in general that the Jews needed a state of their own. That's the only way they could be safe uh, and really the only way they could live fully as Jews. They would suffer discrimination and oppression and danger anywhere else. Those those were the real ideologues. Later on, starting in the 1930s, I think um, a more popular basis for Zionism, even among Jews, but certainly then among non-Jews, or at least support for Zionism among non-Jews in the United States, was the idea that that there were existential dangers facing Jews in certain parts of the world, and they needed a refuge.
1: Okay, so... I see when when we're talking about the distinction like of that biblical sense of zion like next year in zion like we'll all be together but to me that isn't something that i would ever read literally like anything else i wouldn't necessarily read literally and i would think of it in terms of in a way saying next year when we're all safe next year when we can be somewhere where we're all able to be how we want to be and it isn't referencing Uh, geopolitical sovereignty over Mm -hmm. a group of people. Like it's a completely different thing. And so when people that I think are being very, you know, political Zionists reference things that are biblical, to Mm -hmm. me, that's just silliness because Mm -hmm. that really not have anything to do with what their agenda is. Mm -hmm. And then the other problem is, is, is all of that was happening in the 30s. And that is where there is serious propaganda because they knew that if people knew there were people there, it wouldn't be so easy to just create a Jewish state. So the propaganda was a land with no people for a people with no land. And everyone just thought that it was just this empty space that was just sitting there. And since the Jews were always entitled to be there, we could just now make a Jewish state there. And it made that much sense and it's because the fear of what will happen is very rational. Like that part of the equation is to me very rational. I just don't see the logical connection to maintenance of a Jewish state politically to protecting Jews globally.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, there are a number of, of points to um, to pick up on what you say. You're, you're first of all, I, I agree that it's highly dangerous in general for people in the modern world to base Contemporary political claims on ancient sacred books, um, generally not something I would support or recommend. Um, but that's, you know, that's my modern point of view. Uh, and I, I agree that the incantation or the the prayer, you know, next year in Jerusalem, yeah. the, the Passover um, Haggadah uh, that, you know, I think lots of Jews are familiar with. I think for a long, long time was understood very much as just a symbolic statement of yearning for um, uh, a a sense of uh, maybe this worldly salvation rather than literally a messianic hope for the restoration of some ancient, ancient kingdom, you know, given by God. Uh, And, you know, one major branch of American uh, Jewish religion, the reform movement uh, in the late 19th century actually thought it was important to state explicitly as they did, that they did not favor the restoration of the ancient kingdom of King David uh, or the the, the, the the revival of any ancient Bible customs. Uh, and so they were very explicit. They were explicitly anti-Zionist and they eventually changed, right? But that was a major branch of American Judaism. And so there was a real struggle for many decades Within organized American Jewish life, meaning religious life, uh, about whether Reform, in particular, should um, should should move away from their original very strongly anti-Zionist position, and eventually they did. They got on the train. Um, now, uh, as for this understanding that Palestine was empty, right? And I remember, believe me. I heard the same thing when I was a kid. I, I tell you lots of stories. And I, I tend to think of, of Jewish Zionism as a series of concentric circles. There are people in the outer edges who have just a sort of a dim awareness of things. Uh, and then there are people who are more and more involved and who understand a lot more uh, and who understand and who you know have a, a more detailed um, way of thinking about things very, very committed to this movement and its goals. I think at the popular level, there were plenty of people who thought of uh, the land of Israel as not being used or very yeah. inhabited. Maybe there were some people there, but pretty thin on the ground. Uh, and and that maybe the people who lived there were nomadic, uh, didn't really have settled towns, villages, cities. None of that was true. <laughs> there were Bedouins in southern, what became southern Israel, the Negev, Desert, but the Palestinian Arab population certainly lived in villages, towns, and and cities, uh, practiced agriculture and all kinds of other economic uh, activities. Most Jews, certainly in the United States, uh, even 50 years ago, uh, and not even to speak of 100 years ago, uh, really knew very little about this, didn't know anything about it. Uh, I think people who were very involved in buying land and settling. Jews in Palestine uh, before 1948 and in Israel after that understood very differently. I think people who were very involved knew very well that there was an existing uh, Palestinian Arab population. Now, I think that the the phrase you mentioned, um, you know, a, a land without people for a people without land, when that was originally used, you know, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, it was actually slightly different. the The phrase was a land without a people for a people without a land. In other words, I mean, it seems like a small difference, but the idea was that well, maybe there are people there, but they're not truly a people, meaning a nation. Uh, I think the tendency in Britain, in the United States, in Europe generally was to view the Palestinian Arabs as first of all not a distinct nation, whether, you know, or an ethnic group, but rather it's just one part of a broader Arab movement. Uh, And also as um, backward undeveloped, there were real colonialist attitudes that uh, Europeans in general, uh, including Jews uh, and and white people in the United States had about uh, the Arab world, uh, such that uh, it could be seen as positive for Europeans or Americans to move to a place like Palestine and take the land and develop it. Um, This was very much the mindset, not only of of people who were Zionists, but of others who were not Jewish, but supported the Zionist movement. They saw it as a way of helping to modernize that part of the world. All of this is wrapped up in and expressed in the idea that it was a land without a nation, There was a time when Zionism was easily defined by most people as Jewish nationalism. And people don't that easily use that term today. The term nationalism has acquired negative associations, I think, for a lot of people. Um, But in the logic of nationalism, which is what Zionism was, it was a late developing European nationalist movement on the part of a scattered group of people. Uh, In the logic of nationalism, nations had rights to live, to develop, and to be free collectively. Uh, And Zionists believed that Jews were a nation and they had a right to a land. And when they said that Palestine was a land without a people, what they were saying was that, well, there are some people there, not that many. They're not very advanced. But most important, they don't constitute a nation. Therefore, they don't have the same claim to the land that the Jews as a long established National group do And This might seem a strange way of thinking about things today But this was very much the logic Of nationalism which was not Invented by a Jewish Zionist. It was pervasive uh, at the time The Zionist movement uh, took shape
1: Yeah well it's really no Different than what we did to the indigenous People on this continent it's the same thing You know there were people here they were doing Fine without us um, but we Needed to civil we were helping them We were civilizing them uh, and And then it's a matter of Well, they don't have legal papers to show that they own this property. So they're not a legitimate nation. They're not a real people. And we were taught that that they were just sort of and they didn't use the term savages, but they like people were very backwards that they didn't know how to feed themselves that they like we worked. I was taught in my lifetime that if not for like the Jews becoming like Israel becoming a Jewish state, that that, they would have just stayed in the dark ages there. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. Well, I mean, you make the analogy to Native Americans and uh, the way in which you know, their land was, was taken um, through a Euro-American settlement and warfare, of course. Uh, and there are many people who work in uh, higher education and in the academic world today who also make this comparison, which is considered, um, how should I put it? It's controversial in some quarters, considered incendiary to kind of liken or analogize uh, Zionism in historic Palestine with the settler colonialism of Europeans and Americans in North America and in the Americas generally. Uh, But this concept or this category of settler colonialism uh, is one that's been embraced by a lot of uh, academic critics uh, and some activists, even at a popular level, uh, 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 critics of Zionism. And of the state of Israel, and again, this is considered, I think, offensive by um, by many uh, by many Zionists. But it's one that is pretty widely embraced, not only by you know people who are overtly pro-Palestine uh, and pro-Palestinian, but also by academic scholars on a, a broad basis. And of course, there are differences uh, in each case, but there is a general phenomenon. Uh, of settler colonialism uh, that involve, uh, you know, transferring large numbers of people, or people transferring themselves across long distances and dispossessing an indigenous population, uh, and that that's a, a long conversation in itself. Right. It, it's somewhat academic, but I think you see it seep into um, activist um, environments as well. Uh, I think if you were to read um, a lot of the texts that are uh, linked with the Black Lives, Ladder, Black Lives Matter movement, pardon me, um, you would see references to settler colonialism uh, and linkages made between uh, Palestine and, and the United States historically, as well as other societies and countries like Australia or South Africa, perhaps most controversially, uh, New Zealand and other places.
1: Yeah, I think that um, where the disconnect is, is that there the people in, let's say, certain circles that are finding that, that know these are facts. There were people there. We, that was, there was a Nakba that we celebrate on May 14th as some great Independence Day for Israel, which is considered a catastrophe to the 750,000 people whose lives were ruined. Um, we were never taught that. And then there's this huge, um, disconnect between actual facts and even people that we have that are our representatives. Like we see it politically here, it's really a problem. You have representatives calling people out as anti Semitic and throwing that around left and right. These people were never even taught that there was a Nakba. So right. we have people in charge of policy that mm-hmm. are throwing out labels of anti Semitism. Um, and they really have no idea what they're talking about whatsoever.
2: Well, for some people, that's true. I was certainly never taught about the not either as something I learned yeah. about later on. And there was a kind of a folk or a popular sort of narrative that was substituted instead, which was that there weren't a lot of Arabs there. The ones who were there were not doing very much with the land. And, um, and you know, they were asked to stay, but they wanted to leave. Right, um, it was created, and this is often something you heard. I'll tell you a little story about this. Yeah, uh, when I was a kid, I remember watching the old movie Exodus on TV with my father, and that was that was adapted from an unbelievably successful book, which was a work of fiction by Leon Uris, and I think it was yeah. published in 1958. And believe me, that novel Exodus that was the basis for most Americans' understanding of Israel and its history, whether they were Jews or Christians. I mean, it was an unbelievably important book in, in spreading certain narratives. Um, and in the movie version, Lee J. Khan, uh, he's this elder, uh, Zionist elder statesman. And at the end of the movie, uh, when the war comes and the Arabs are leaving, he gets up behind a microphone on a microphone on a platform and he says to the Arabs, stay, stay with us. Uh, please build the nation with us. I remember watching this with my dad on TV. My dad was a total Zionist. You know, um, I grew up in a Jewish household and it was, you know, it was, just as you said earlier in your introduction, and you went without saying, you were totally pro-Israel. I remember even so watching it with my dad, and when Lee J. Cobb, the actor, says this, my dad said, well, that's not true. <laughs> they didn't, the Israelis didn't say, please stay. So, you know, I, and, and this was not, my dad was not somebody who'd studied this in depth, but I think that to some extent, people had no idea, and they didn't know a lot about these things, but to some extent also, people in the Jewish community Understood that another people had been displaced, and some of the talking points were said with kind of a a wink and a nod, um, at least at times. Uh, So, um, you know, I I do think that um, there was a strong attitude that, look, Jews have been pushed around for centuries, and they're gonna, they got a right to do some of their own pushing now. Um, And I don't need to know the details, Uh, but it's also true that uh, most Jews really until pretty recently never learned about this. And there's a group called if not now, I think that runs a project called you never told us. Yeah. Which expresses this very, um, powerfully, you know, I think the situation is different now, um, in the sense that most people don't you know, you've got to be in a pretty cloistered environment, not to know that there are people called Palestinians and they have their own narrative. I think, uh, And I've seen some people shift pretty deftly, pretty quickly from saying, I don't know about that. That's wrong to saying, oh, sure, everybody knows about that. We don't need to talk about that. Uh, I've I've experienced that. And um, so uh, I think, you know, if you talk to uh, Palestinian-Americans, if you talk to Arab-Americans in general, American-Muslims, and by the way, I think it's important that American Jews... um, you know, take whatever opportunities they have to do that. Um, they'll, they'll hear, uh, of course, another perspective, and um, I think that's important. We're speaking with Professor Doug
0: Rusanow. 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 I can't help myself. Of Metro State University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, big football game for you, too, tomorrow, by It the way. always comes out. Uh, the Vikings and the Dolphins. I mean,
1: Spider-Man. well, so if we can, beautiful. let's say we could all agree on a shared sense of history, okay? Then... Where do we? How do we get people to understand that the concept of a two-state solution is not is not a thing? Like that's that that's not a possible thing now. Like we're past that at this point.
2: Well, that might be true. Um, you know, people who have always uh, well, first of all, back up a little bit, yeah. do some of the history. Um, American Jews in general didn't favor a two-state solution until the 1980s. Uh, they were always against. Um, Well, people who supported the state of Israel uh, had a lot of reasons why Israel should not relinquish the territory that it had conquered in 1967 in the West Bank, East Jerusalem, the Gaza Strip, the Golan Heights, uh, uh, and the Sinai, which they did give back to Egypt through negotiations in the late 1970s. Uh, The basis for a two-state solution would be Israel giving up most or all of the territory it conquered in 1967. And it was only after the first Intifada. Seven, 1987, 1988, that a lot of American Jews who were Zionists but who were also liberal, started to say, two-state solution, that's what we need. And that really became the liberal Zionist position then, in the late 80s, after the first intifada. Uh, details need to be worked out, but basically that's the goal. And that became the official uh, view of the United States government after that, across several presidential administrations of both parties. Uh, and you know there was the Oslo Peace Accords, which then ran aground. In the 1990s, uh, which is a long story in itself, but throughout this entire period, um, from the 80s onward, the State of Israel was was settling more and more Jews uh, on the West Bank in East Jerusalem, uh, particularly. Which over time, I mean, it, it's, I mean, if you look back to the 70s and 80s, it's amazing how small the number of Jewish settlers were compared to what they are today, and how much more possible it might seem it would have been back then. Yeah, to have actually made a two-state solution work. It's very hard for a lot of people uh, today to see how that could work, um, which has led people, at least who are uh, very progressive, to start thinking about whether there's a way eventually for a one-state solution to work, which was always something that Zionists were totally uh, against and supporters of Israel were totally against, and most of them still are. They say that's impossible. That would be the end of Jews in Israel uh, and it would be the end of, you know, it would be extremely dangerous, and it would be the end of any kind of a Jewish state. Uh, But, you know, now it's hard to see how any solution is really that feasible or promising, so I think eventually people are going to have to come to new ways of thinking about this. If people think it's possible to still make a two-state solution work, then I think it's that the burden is on them to show uh, how that's possible and and how they're willing to support the things that are necessary to to make that happen. Uh, in general, I think liberal Zionists have had this two-state solution position since the late 80s. And I, I do think it was meaningful in the late 80s for liberal Zionists in this country to say, well, we now recognize Palestinian peoplehood, which they'd never done before, most of them. And to say, OK, well, there should be two states for two peoples. But, you know, that was a meaningful thing to do 35 years ago or a meaningful thing to say. A lot has changed on the ground. Many more hundreds of thousands of Jewish settlers in the West Bank. And is it possible now or does there have to be um, a new way in the future? Uh, I don't think um, I don't think this will be resolved easily or quickly. I think there's a long struggle ahead and it'll be painful for a lot of people. There's there's no way around that.
0: What do you equate a lot of the anti-Semitism that you're seeing today? Uh, Because obviously everything is, um, you know, it's somewhat familiar as generations go on. But I'd like to think that there are certain uh, correlations between the behavior of the Israeli government and the backlash that we have seen, not just there, but also here in the States. I think that there is something to be said for that. How do you see it as it currently stands?
2: Uh, are you asking about anti-Semitism yes. in the United States, where it comes from? Yeah, where you would say it's, uh, are, are there any,
0: are there any trigger points, you would say, that are making it become more ramped up? Is it the behavior uh, towards the Palestinian people the as Western, well? Western. And bigger, or yeah, see?
2: I, yeah I, I think maybe I understand what you're, you're asking. I think uh, the resurgence and the rise of anti-Semitism in the United States and elsewhere in Europe, for example, it's very real, unfortunately. Uh, alarmingly, does the behavior of Israel toward the Palestinians help to fuel the rise of anti-Semitism? I think perhaps it can. I think that increased anti-Semitism probably has other um, sources, independent sources, but uh, it seems hopelessly entangled with people's feelings for and against Israel about Israel uh, and the Palestinians. You know, right-wing Anti Semites in the United States, um, like the kind you saw of march in Charlottesville uh, some years ago, chanting, Jews will not replace us uh, because they support the so called great replacement theory, or believe in it, I should say. Um, you know, they're not motivated by um, solidarity with the Palestinians. Right? Um, as a matter of fact, what they're arguing is that Jews in the United States somehow have masterminded um, immigration. In general, to the United States, that threatens the cultural fabric of, of this country, and that threatening immigration would probably include Muslim immigration. So, you know, it, right-wing anti-Semites, I don't think, are motivated by uh, concern yeah. over over the rights of the Palestinians. There are people on the left um, who are are so angry about Israel's treatment of the Palestinians that uh, they sometimes um, speak with a good deal of venom about Israel. Uh, and uh, many Jews, including those who are progressive, are taken aback. I think by the by the feeling of antagonism that they experience, especially if they're still attached to the, the state of Israel. And there are people, whether it's in the Arab world, in the Middle East, in Europe, or in the United States, who see the the great success of the state of Israel in getting its way um, with regard to the Palestinians, and also regarding extensive support from the U.S. government who interpret that success of the state of Israel politically as the product of some special, um, even somewhat demonic power that Jews have internationally. So there are ways in which uh, antagonism toward Israel and solidarity with Palestinians can uh, can take on an anti-Semitic form and fuel uh, those you know that that kind of poison, uh, but I, I think it's very important for people who uh, are concerned about anti-Semitism, and particularly if they support the state of Israel, to really be careful uh, and and not uh, indulge in the in the in the sort of easy out of saying um, criticism of Israel or even outright anti-Zionism is anti-Semitic. Uh, but, but at a kind of emotional level, these things, these things get entangled. I mean, Jen, you, I think we're first and foremost interested in separating Jewishness and Judaism from Zionism yes. and they are different things. Zionism is an ideology. Uh, it's an international project, uh, that's existed over the last 100 years. Judaism obviously is a religion. It goes back much longer. Jewishness is an identity that combines ethnic and religious elements, uh, these things are all in different categories. They're not the same things, uh, but they have links to one another. Of course, very close links to one another. When they, uh, when you see them, uh, I mean, Zionism wouldn't exist. Of course, it's very closely related to to Jewishness. Uh, but at an emotional level, it's important to understand how these things can get entangled, um, in the 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 minds, uh, and the hearts of people who are are Jewish and hear criticism of the state of israel but also sometimes in the minds of people who are very angry about um the things that they see israel doing
0: on both yeah and then you (laughs) find yourself in a very unique situation because your congresswoman um basically takes the brunt of a lot of the uh you want to say anti-muslim hatred in this country she wears a hijab which uh, only adds to the uh the ramped up uh anger towards um you know the fact that she is a I mean, listen, of all the members of the so-called squad, I mean, Representative Omar gets more done on Capitol Hill than anybody else does. Um, you know, her her record speaks for itself. Um, and again, I don't agree with everything that she says. But,
1: but we don't think she's an anti-Semite. And um, I know that there are people that accuse her, such as our representative, sure. has accused her of being anti-Semitic. How do you yes. see
0: Representative Omar as a, a representative, not just of the Twin Cities, but you know, as somebody who has spoken out against uh, or, or basically has tried to be as politically correct as possible,
2: distinguishing between Zionism and Judaism. Right. Well, I, I don't see her as an anti-Semite. <laughs> um, I, I don't. I mean, she said things of
1: course,
2: huh? about the, um, the influence of the Israel lobby uh, on Capitol Hill, which get a lot of people pissed off. But, you know, um, it the, the existence of the Israel lobby and its um it's, it's a formidable lobby, you know, it's not really a, a secret, even though people in, in public might think it's still good politics to be angry when anybody says that it exists. Uh, I think representative Omar sometimes has spoken, um, somewhat flippantly. And I think that's been unfortunate because she is somebody who's vulnerable to serious, um, criticism and political attack on this basis. So I think, um, you know, it's probably in her, her interest to, to speak carefully. Um, she made a comment about it's all about the Benjamins, the influence of Israel on Capitol Hill. Um, you know, I don't think it's, it's that simple. And that's, um, although I think, you know, campaign donations are very, very important, um, but uh, there's also a lot of genuine uh, and sincere support for Israel and the American population generally, uh, as well as among people who are involved in, in politics But uh, nonetheless, it's been very important for somebody like Representative Omar uh, to be in Congress uh, willing to speak on behalf of the Palestinians and what they experience and to raise critical questions about the forms and extent of U.S. support for the state of Israel. Uh, She's not the only one who's done so. Uh, The uh, U.S. Representative for St. Paul uh, next door to Minneapolis, uh, Betty McCollum, uh, has been quite outspoken. Not as public, perhaps not as high profile, but has done a lot of work uh, and is quite concerned about uh, about the treatment of Palestinians, uh, and has has been you know has been you know a very important voice on Capitol Hill, uh, and there are others. Um, but the uh, the idea that that the state of Israel can just have anything it wants from Congress um, has been a problem, I think, uh, for a long time. Congress alone does not make U.S. foreign policy, uh, but it plays an important role. And uh, for people to raise critical questions, if they're progressives, about those kind of international relationships and about any country uh, getting a blank check uh, from the U.S. Um, people who represent U.S. taxpayers, uh, regardless of what they do uh, to the to Palestinians, uh, I think that that is an important thing for progressives to support. And increasingly, I think they do support. it.
1: I think so. I mean, we definitely see it more on the left. It still is not trickled up to the more, you know, centrist people. And that's what I'm trying to do is like teach people, you know, there's a whole story that you were never taught. um, And what's very frustrating is that no matter what avenue people choose to protest. So obviously BDS is, you know, a very huge nonviolent movement. And people don't realize that it comes from Palestinians. It's their movement that other people are supporting. But we get this "what whataboutism, right? Like, well, but but so-and-so does this. And well, what about Saudi Arabia? And I'm like, yeah, I'm against that too. But right. none of those places, interestingly, claim to be the best. They're the only democracy in the Middle East. So my thing is whether or not you might agree with a nation state of Jewish state or not but you cannot have your own facts, right? So you can't then say that it functions as a democracy when it functions as, as an apartheid state. So I just, I wanna put out there like that, one, there is a lot of nonviolent resistance that is going on. People on um, the you know, pro Zionist side tend to say, oh, the Arabs are always trying to kill us and they're building tunnels to come and kill us and all this stuff. And nobody recognizes that, no, there's nonviolent action. And then the people that want to participate in that nonviolent action get labeled anti-Semitic.
2: Well, that's right. And there's a great deal of nonviolent activism, you're right, in Palestine and on the part of people who are in solidarity with the Palestinians. And and many times I've heard people say, well, if only the Palestinians would engage, would uh, embrace nonviolence, then they'd make more headway. Well, a lot of them do and have, and and people don't hear about it enough, you know. um, Kind of like that corporate media. I mean, uh, and you, know, you have to go to peacemakers.org or, you know, other places to find information about this. Uh, many of the Christian churches actually have been very involved with this, most of all the Quakers, uh, this issue for a long time. And I think there's some Jews um, who are rubbed the wrong way by the idea that Christians are going to talk to Jews about what the Jewish state is doing wrong, given the history of Christian anti-Semitism. But the fact is, um, they have been active with very much nonviolent um, protest and, and solidarity uh, activities. So um, I think that's important to know. Yeah. Professor, we can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. And I morning.
1: have no idea what happened uh, to Rabbi Rosen. Like, he was supposed, I mean, I had so many notes,
0: like copious notes. He's going to have to do, you're going to have to do your own show with him, considering how much notes you took. Oh, I that's have copious days. notes. Yeah, that's going to be a like, podcast <laughs> on its own. But yeah, I mean, listen, you know what,
1: it's Saturday. Have you read of, this,
2: Doug? Uh, no, I do not
1: Oh my God, it's really good because it, this is the kind of thing that unfortunately a lot of the older people need is to have their hand held by a rabbi who sort of went through this awareness and reckoning and have it explained that it's normal to feel bad about this, but that doesn't mean we should ignore it. But I already, it we've already
0: gotten multiple emails from people who couldn't make it today saying, we're sorry, we're sorry, we'll definitely be back another time. So well, this used to be a
1: series you. instead of yeah. an event is uh-huh. what I think I'm turning this into. It'll just be like an ongoing series.
0: Professor, how can people reach you if they want to check out your work? If there's anything in particular they Is, may have a question. Um, what's the most
1: recent book? What's what are you? You have anything you're plugging?
0: Well, well, he did write a book about
1: me oh, a few years ago. He's got to uh, go there.
0: I yeah. definitely saw America in the, the greatest way possible, but. Even though I won the greatest electoral landslide in our nation's oh history, I somehow was not able to convince
2: Minnesota to vote for
0: me. So I, <laughs> I did the best I could. And it didn't work.
2: Well, no. any, anybody who's Gen X like I am remembers the eighties really well. Really has really vivid memories wow. of it. So yeah, I did write the book on uh, Reagan, the Reagan era, uh, and you know, since then I've been working on this project. Uh, and uh, yeah, you know, my uh, my university email uh, is pretty easy to find. Um, happy to field questions from people if they arise. I'll, I'll just I'll just make one further comment, if I can, before we, we close. Uh, I mean, Jen, you talked about people saying, what what about-ism? Uh, yeah. i what about Saudi Arabia? And you're saying, well, you don't support Saudi Arabia. You're not enthusiastic about Saudi Arabia. Uh, I, I mean, I really think that the idea of, um, you know, th- this is a, a problem for liberals and progressives. I mean, the idea of supporting an ethnostate I don't think that that's necessarily a problem for someone on the right, for a conservative, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it's a problem for liberals because in general, they don't celebrate um, ethnostates. Uh, there's one that, that some of them celebrate. And, 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 and it's, it's an exception, I think, that a lot of liberals make. And, and that's something to reflect on.
0: Absolutely. Professor, thank you so much. Let's continue the conversation. Appreciate yeah, would you would you
1: come back and talk about other stuff sometime?
2: Sure, of course. I'm I'm always happy to talk about history.
1: Okay, no, that's great. No, he's going to want to talk to you about Reagan in the '80s because he was sure. born in the '80s. He's not like us. We're Gen X. We know.
2: Yeah, I was born in the yeah. I, I will talk about the '80s anytime.
0: No, I was born in '83, but I do have I do have vivid memories of Reagan when I was young. I mean, he really stood out. He was a oh. cultural icon. I mean, there's just no getting around that, right? You know, when you think about the '80s, you think about Back to the Future, Ghostbusters, things like that. But you know, you you also think about I think Ronald big Reagan. hair. Um, yeah, I
1: had some big hair.
0: I, listen, I'm a uh, I'm somewhat jealous of my colleague here who happened to see Springsteen at the Orange Bowl during the Born in the USA. You know, I did. Tour. uh but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that were great about the eighties, but there's a lot of things <laughs> that we can't ignore. That the eighties no. was the, basically the start of how we got to where we got. Today. Oh, we'll,
1: we'll we'll address this at another point. But thank you for being so professorial. That's exactly what we need.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I do. Uh, but but thank you for having me. It's uh, always it's very nice talking with you.
1: Thank
0: Absolutely. you, Doug. Nice, nice you. to meet you. Have a great day. Uh, so
1: interestingly enough I
0: think we figured out what our problem was I the think theory. we figured
1: out what our problem is with the rabbi is that and this is this is on me um that I do look back and he was questioning what time zone because both um, professor rossel and, and here we go Oh wait, no. Oh, that's Katie. So um
0: no. what I when I sent him the email this morning, though, I specifically indicated that it was Easter, uh, Easter Sanders, okay. of time, but he may not have ignored. You know, again, it's what it is. I mean, right, right. Time people. So
1: we very well might now have Rabbi Rosen coming in and also being, if he, if he comes back, like he popped in for a minute and then I thought, Oh my God, he thought we were central time. So then he, which is fine, but then he, he left again. So I don't know, but I really want to talk to him about this. And for anybody, if you haven't read this, I highly recommend it. Um, I have my, I have my mom like basically force feeding this down my dad's throat right now as we speak. Um, some people need to have their hands held with this specifically older jewish people right. and it is what it
0: is you want to we we can,
1: you can. but I, I mean are we just gonna okay well, That's all right some we'll some just kind of keep words. it rolling
0: yeah well you know i always need a little intro if you will katie hopper is a comedian writer podcaster and political commentator pretty good one I?
1: she's very busy i see her all over the place now i just saw her on with mike
0: figure our favorite she is the host of the Katie Halper Show, a co-host of the Useful Idiots podcast and a strong voice on the left in independent media. you got that right. Katie Halper, welcome back to Generational Change.
3: Hi. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I noticed you've
1: been covering this topic a lot as of late. Um, and I know that you're this isn't new to you, but definitely what happened if you would just tell like I, I, unless you're sick of telling the story as to like the recap as to what happened with you on um rising and what like this is to me is just blatant censorship but it's just ridiculous so if you would just tell people what the recent thing was that happened um that went down that is really abhorrent
3: sure yeah so um i was at rising for like three years as a weekly guest i would come on every week um i did that when crystal and saga were the hosts and then i did it again when. Um, They had the new round of hosts. And as people probably know, Rising's uh, shtick, if you will, is to have someone on the left and someone on the right. Um, And I, so I would come on as a guest, but in addition to being on as a guest, they then brought me on as a host. Um, And uh, I would obviously be, I would represent the person on the left when I was hosting. And I, I, Let's see. I had done it around three times. I had hosted around three times and I was going to host uh, three more times. And uh, when you are a host, you get to do something called a radar. So a radar is like a monologue that you deliver. And I... I hadn't done one of those before because I wanted to make sure I would kind of mastered hosting. There's a lot you do when you're a host. But I hosted three times. I felt good about it. So I was like, "Okay, I'm going to do one of these radars. So I wrote a a monologue. And what I decided to write the monologue about was the attacks on Rashida Tlaib, who was attacked as basically making anti-Semitic comments because she had said at virtual remarks at a uh, Justice for Palestine conference that people were realizing more and more that um, you can't be progressive and celebrate uh, Israel's apartheid government. People realizing more and more that you can't be progressive except for on Palestine. There's actually a term for that. It's called PEP. Um, and uh, they also uh, smeared her. People like uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. People like. Um, by the way, I'm happy to come on with whoever else is on right now. Oh, I'm well, we're going to introduce him.
1: I'm letting you finish your story. So oh, this, okay. is on, guys, and this is on me. So Rabbi Rosen is in the central time zone and I didn't properly and accurately respond because Peter normally does our booking and I screwed it up. So now we're going to have him on and we're going to all just chat. And then also the amazing Ronnie Kallick is here. And okay. so we have- Shall I? Okay, fine. He likes it. Okay, fine. Rabbi
0: Brett Rosen is a Chicago-based rabbi, blogger, and social activist. He's oh. the co-founder of the Social Justice Focus conversation uh you're
1: never going to be able to pronounce it Zedek,
0: I, Okay. tzedek
1: chicago is
0: the author of wrestling in the daylight a rabbi's path to palestinian solidarity look
1: at the copious notes people
0: rabbi welcome to generational change thanks so much and, so, in, the, and in the other corner
1: so you're joining us in the next panel but it's all good Gotcha. Right. Hi,
0: Katie. Hi. Nice my very uh, my very favorite uh, Middle Eastern journalist. And she is. How a- many Middle Eastern journalists are you friends with? Uh, not one as badass as this one. Okay. Rania Kallik is a Lebanese American writer, political activist and journalist at Breakthrough News. Her work has appeared at Common Dreams, Salon, The Nation, In These Times, Citizen Radio and many more. Her in-depth reporting dispatches from the underclass can also be found on our website, Ronyacalick.com. You know where you love her. Welcome back, Ronia Callick to Generation of
4: Change. Hey. Hey guys. It's so good to see um, you and be back with you. Thanks for having are, me on. Are you, are you here or there? Where are you? I'm in I'm here. I'm in Virginia at the moment. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. It, so you're in
1: our time, you're in our time zone? I am. Yeah. I
4: am for the time for yeah. the next couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah.
1: So by Ranya lives in Lebanon so usually that's I why know. normally yeah yeah right the middle of the night
3: yeah uh, so katie finish the story yeah okay i'll ra- I'll do a quick sorry i was distracted because no, 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 i was trying to figure no, no, out who was coming on so all right all right,
1: all right. Was katie was fired yeah
3: so, was fired. so i'll just yeah so re- really quickly i'll explain what happened so i decided to defend rashid slave and also lay out the case for why israel is an apartheid government because one of the things that happened after she made her comments is that Uh, John Greenblatt from Jonathan Greenblatt from the ADL, from the Anti-Defamation League, um, smeared her and also misrepresented what she said. He said that she had imposed a litmus test on American Jews. She didn't even mention American Jews in her statements. So, um, and Jake Tapper, who likes to pick on Rashida Tlaib, did a little thing on her where he's like, some of her Jewish colleagues think that it was anti-Semitic for her to say what she said. So I pushed back on that allegation and I also... um, laid out why Israel is indeed an apartheid government. And to do that, I cited, because um, apartheid is actually a, a crime. It's a definable crime. And so I cited the United Nations, the International Criminal Court. I quoted them. I quoted Israeli law that sh- that was obviously fulfilled those um, criteria for apartheid. I cited international human rights organizations like um Amnesty International Human Rights Watch. I cited uh, Palestinian human rights organizations. I quoted and cited Bethlehem, which is an Israeli human rights organization. I quoted um, several high-ranking Israeli officials, including prime ministers who themselves said that Israel was either an apartheid state or was going to become an apartheid state. And I also quoted Nelson Mandela and um, Bishop Desmond Tutu and also Neledi Pandor, who is a... Um, minister for the government of South Africa, who was just speaking at the United Nations General Assembly, and also said that there was a growing consensus about Israel being an apartheid state. And she, interestingly enough, cited Daniel Levy, who was an Israeli negotiator at the Oslo Accords. Um, they, as I, I was as I was leaving for the day, the producers t- called me, said, yeah, just want you to hear it from me. The higher-ups at the Hill saw your radar, saw your, saw your monologue, and they're not gonna be running it. And I asked why. She said, oh, there's a policy I didn't know about. It's a new policy where we don't do, at the Hill, we don't do um, op-eds, video or written op-eds on Israel. I thought that was weird. I kind of pushed back respectfully, um, was like, well, why don't you run it? And then you can have someone with an opposing view respond to it or have me on with someone else who disagrees. Um, I really want to get it out there. And so behind the scenes at this moment, I'm reaching out to Rania Kallak at uh, Breakthrough News because I really want to make sure this video gets out there. So I show her the script and she likes it. Um, I'm uh, talking to the producers. This this was on a Monday that they refused to run the radar and on a Monday that I recorded it. Then talking to them over the course of a few days. Wednesday, um, I get a call from the editor-in-chief of The Hill who tells me that they're not going to run it. I ask him why. He says, we got lots of pitches all the time that we pass on, which is just not how it works there. Like I know this from my friends who work at the hill and ryan grimm who wrote about this at the intercept who used to be a host at the hill uh, as he mentioned he estimates he did probably 150 of these radars of these monologues and nobody ever pushed back at all nobody even edited it or looked at it he said you know they just load them into the teleprompter typos and all so i didn't find that a convincing reason then he said it wasn't in our sweet spot of coverage um, because it was de, uh, international, not domestic. Again, first of all, there's the Rashida Taleb aspect, which makes it domestic. But also as someone who is both guested and hosted at the show at Rising, I know how frequently international stories come up. So then what they had told me, the producer had told me that this policy about which she hadn't known, and I believe her, I think she didn't know about this policy, that you couldn't do Israel op-eds, but that you could do segments on it. So to clarify a segment, when I would go on every week over the course of three years, that was a segment. I would go on as a guest and I would talk about a story. So my understanding was that you could talk about Israel according to this new policy as during a story, if not a straight to a camera monologue. So I said, so can I talk about on my segment tomorrow? And they said, check your email. And that's when I got an email from someone at the Hill saying, we won't be needing you to come in to do your... Um, your segment tomorrow. Uh, please send any unpaid invoices. Best of luck. Luckily, speaking of luck, um, I did f- the video with um, Breakthrough News, so you can find the monologue, the video at youtube.com/slash the Katie Helper Show and youtube.com/slash Breakthrough News.
1: We played it. We played oh, right. it all here too. So I forget yeah. like which show ago we played the whole thing. Uh, yeah, once, uh,
0: Wednesday.
3: Yeah, yeah. Last week. So that's basically the story. Brianna Joy Gray, who's at the Hill. Um, def- she has decided to stay at the Hill, which I totally respect. I think like it's important to get, use those, um, megaphones and those, you know, whatever the visual equivalent of that is video cameras to, to get at a leftist perspective. I really appreciated that she condemned their decision. She basically said she didn't buy their what they told her behind the scenes that she said on the Hill is that I was a stylistic choice for which they didn't run the radar. I don't think anyone believed that just because, especially when they actually saw it, there was really nothing in it that you could, um, I'm not beyond, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect at all, but in this particular monologue, I just don't think that there was anything you could point to that was remotely um, problematic stylistically. I mean, it was obviously an ideological decision, and um, I had also another thing I want to clarify is a lot of people are like, oh, you obviously would get fired. You were just trying to make a point. Not at all. I had as a guest talked about Israel on several occasions. I said Israel lied about killing um Shireen Abu Akleh. I covered Israel shuttering these human rights organizations uh, in the middle of the night. I talked about Israel bombing a cemetery where children were visiting their grandfather's grave. So there was really no indication for me that they would uh, not allow this kind of um, monologue. So that's it.
1: Unbelievable, although yet very believable. Yeah, yeah. And um, this is the main thrust of this is just how the media covers it and what the different sort of perspectives are, because I feel like um, it's very skewed here. And what we're getting is obviously not accurate. And I know, Rania, that that's something that that's what you do because that's what you do. But that's not the news that most people are getting. That's that's the problem. And then the other side of it is that is the First Amendment issue about what's going on with the BDS and the amount of states that are not even um, the 26 states, I think, have anti BDS legislation on the books um, where you're not where you can actually not contract with somebody. And this I, I believe in Texas in January, the lawsuit was actually finished. But this censorship issue that we're having regarding what is real and what is not. And I think that's the key point that we need to talk about. Rania, what are your thoughts? I mean, I know that you see it left and right.
4: Of course. I mean, what, you know, what really stands out to me about this is the fact that it's 2022 and this is still happening. I mean, it's like, I feel like we've been having this conversation for so many years, certainly as long as I've been in journalism and media and even much, much longer. And it felt like things had started to get a little bit better in the sense that I think in a lot of mainstream media outlets, you do have an increasingly larger group of people, journalists, commentators, pundits who have a different position on this issue, who have a more progressive position on this issue. People like Katie, right? And then also like even you know, you have younger Jews and also younger Arabs who are, like, getting more positions at these outlets are, you know, they they aren't so, like, ardently pro-Israel. There is more room for criticism. Yet still, it, it's, like, stunning to me how despite the change in public opinion and even inside media outlets – um you still have this insane level of censorship that's coming from the top for various reasons. And you know we don't exactly know why the Hill decided to do this. We can speculate about it. I know that um, Katie's talked about this on a lot of shows about the change in ownership over the Hill. Um, but and that might be a part of it. The fact that there's this like Israel lobbyist who's working in an editorial position right. over there. That might be a part of this. I mean, what's really disturbing and outrageous about the Hill doing this of all places is that they really have tried to brand themselves as this place that opposes cancel culture and opposes censorship and likes to like air all viewpoints no matter how extreme. And so that's what is like so stunning about this is this does a huge disservice to your whole brand. And also it just shows your brand is complete BS. Uh, but beyond that, it, it shows that like no matter how much public opinion changes, at the end of the day, um, there's still an element of like, this is that sort of third rail issue, no matter what happens, you can talk, you, you know there's space at outlets to like very little space, but in the narrow parameters that exist in corporate media, there's space to talk about diplomacy in Ukraine. You know, there's some space to talk about, um, I mean, I don't know, there's space to like a little bit of space to criticize NATO. Like all of these taboo issues don't necessarily get you fired. Like I just can't think of people who are getting fired the way that Katie was fired from the Hill, the way that Mark Lamont Hill was fired from CNN, the way that there was this actually reporter for the New York Times in Gaza who was recently let go. Um, and it's it's really unclear why, but it's likely due to like an editorial decision that by like an Israel, a pro-Israel person who was in a position to push that and get and rid this, of him.
3: And this organization called Honest Reporting, which also right, which did also a, a on me. Yeah.
4: Right. Which also attacked Katie. Yeah.
3: Um,
4: so yeah, I mean, I think it shows that in some ways, like the change in public opinion definitely is not enough on this issue when it comes to the way that media covers it. It's like some things just never change and I'm not sure what the answer is or how to change them. I guess the best way to go about it is at the end of the day, this is why independent media is so important. Like this is why it's so important to have things like breakthrough news and things like your outlet and outlets that aren't, you know, uh, corporately funded, and don't have to answer to people with like trashy centrist or right-wing politics. Yeah.
1: I just want to ask. So this book, Rabbi, you originally was printed in 2012. Um, I'm sorry to say I'm very late to this party. Um, I mean, I wasn't that like late, but late in late and really like getting in on this, but have you noticed any progress since when this came out to where we are now in terms of the dialogue that's happening in media?
5: In media, I think it's, I would say it's crawling. It's moving, I think, in the right direction. But then the situation that we've been talking about is an example, that it's there's still a long way to go. And there's still that that third rail that Ryan was talking about. Uh, in the Jewish community, I would say it's, uh, the conversation is widening in really dramatic ways. And I think we're seeing blowback. I think we're seeing really vicious pushback uh, to the rising numbers of, uh, members of the Jewish community, particularly younger members, who are openly speaking their conscience on, on, the, on the issue of Israel and, and, you know, proudly stating that they're Jewish and they're not Zionists and they're, Zionist and they're, they're anti-Zionist. Um, and I think that is, I think the reason why we're hearing more and more uh, that the, the trope that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism is precisely because of this. Uh, I just want to mention, by the way, I, in my Yom Kippur sermon, Last week was Yom Kippur in the Jewish community, and I started by mentioning the situation with Rashida Tlaib. Uh, and because I mean, there's so much to say about what happened, but for me, the challenge that she puts out in in that statement, in that short statement, which is basically, you can't be progressive and support apartheid. I mean, it's it's a very simple statement, right? And you know, as Katie mentioned, there is there are so many reputable human rights you know, advocates who are stating, and and you know even Israeli politicians who are stating this is apartheid. Um, you can't you can't be progressive and support apartheid. And that to me on Yom Kippur this is a direct moral challenge. That being progressive except for Palestine is unacceptable. And you know we we can't dither on this issue. We have to make a decision. We have to make a decision to to say this is wrong. If we're going to call ourselves progressives, then we have to be progressive down the line.
0: One of the things that I observed right after Katie was let go was the response uh, to Wasserman Schultz's comments, as well as others.
1: Thank you, Katie, by the way, for focusing on that, because it was really funny to me.
0: Overwhelmingly, people rejected what Debbie was saying, as well as the others. The only ones who really came to Debbie's defense were the most hardcore right wing pro-Israel Zionistic people. The i would say if you're looking for a split it's probably like 85 90 basically uh you know condemning what she was saying and i think that that was also reflective in the people who were willing to give katie coverage after the fact and probably very similar comments were happening there now it's not like katie's going to be getting a phone call from you know rachel maddow or tucker carlson to come on and talk about this oh, but God. the reaction from independent media is actually the type of reaction that we probably wouldn't have even seen five years ago. We have evolved quite a bit, as Ronnie, I'm sure you have observed. Uh, things are definitely heading in the right direction on this issue, but it's still very, very big. And, you know, the thing that the, from just my observation, living down here in South Florida, the reaction is always, well, uh, the Jews are going to be persecuted and they're going to be killed and this and that. And, you know, how do you deal with combating that narrative of, I mean, anti-Semitism is very real and we saw what you know, nincompoop Kanye West said the other day, you know, there is there is this problem um, that can't be ignored, but I also equate it to the behavior of the Israeli government does play a significant role in the amped up anti Semitism we're seeing today. What do you guys think about that?
4: I don't know who wants to take that. Uh,
3: <laughs> I think that- One I'll thing say, I would um, just add, yeah. oh, sorry. No, 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 you go, ahead. No. One thing I, I was muted, so I didn't mean to run out interrupting you. Um, one thing I would say about the conflation between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism is that it's pretty rich that you have the ADL and AIPAC trafficking in that idea and conflating those two things, because that's an anti-Semitic trope. I mean, anti-Semites are the ones who like to call Jews Zionists. They use the word Zionist as a shorthand for Jews. They're the ones who talk about the dual loyalty um trope which suggests that you know american jews will never be fully loyal to america because well i mean i'm not really fully loyal to the american government obviously but that's another issue but the idea being that you're not a real patriot um or that you are uh going to be um concerned with the interests of israel if you're a jew so it's really dangerous that in this age of actual anti-semitism um and kind of increased white uh right-wing um you know Alt right, neo Nazi, um, white supremacist violence that you have ADL, the ADL and the APAC both um, perpetuating an anti Semitic stereotype, but also kind of both sidesing anti Semitism and saying, well, on the right, you have people who shoot up synagogues, but on the left, you have people who support BDS. Um, and it's just disgusting and cynical. And they don't really care about the safety of Jews, they care about um, Israel.
4: Oh, and yeah, I think it's really a really good point, because if you think about when instances of anti-Semitism sometimes in the West, according to the ADL, by the way, go up, it's oftentimes when Israel's carrying out some sort of operation and then people are reacting that because you have a country equating itself with the Jewish people. I mean, I'll tell you as somebody who's from families from Lebanon, you know, actually, let me tell this story first. You know, a few years ago, the ADL did a survey in the West Bank. Uh, a survey that they said demonstrated how Palestinians in the West Bank are anti-Semitic. And if you looked at the questions on that survey, it was things like, do you think Jews have too much power? Now, if you were to ask somebody in America that and they answered, yes, I do, then yes, that would be like an anti-Semitic trope. Right. But if you're going to ask people who are literally living under occupation by an army that calls themselves <laughs> the army of the Jewish state and literally has the Star of David like on its tanks and on its uniforms then I mean, that's just insane. That's just cruel to then point the finger at these people and say they're bigoted because they think Jews in an, in an apartheid country that literally privileges Jewish people and like gives you fewer rights if you're not Jewish, that that's anti-Semitic. That's insane. And like I remember, you know, in the same goes for even a place like Lebanon or across the Middle East. I mean, a lot of people in countries across the Middle East have very negative views about the Jewish faith because they associate it with a country that bombs them. Um, I remember when I was a kid and I was like, I was like, I don't know, like seven or eight years old. I was visiting Lebanon for like the first time in my life. And we were drawing, uh, me and my cousin were like sitting around like coloring and drawing. And I drew like a star. And the only way I knew how to draw a star was to draw two triangles. And I remember my aunt came into the room and she was like so horrified because I drew a star of David. And like, that's the mentality of people in the region towards symbols of Judaism because of Israel, because it has it on the flag. So if we want to talk about what perpetuates the kind of anti-Semitism that the ADL despises so much, if they actually cared, they would find it very problematic that there is a very aggressive apartheid country using the symbol of a religion to characterize and identify themselves. Um, And then acting very aggressively towards people around the world and then conflating any criticism of that country with jewish people i mean it's like that's the conversation that should be a part of the anti-semitism conversation and it's not because a lot of these organizations like katie said don't actually care they don't actually care about anti-jewish bigotry
1: what's interesting is i saw somewhere recently and it was the head of i don't know if it was the apac the the pack pack or it was the head of apac but said we're not about jews we're not we that's not what we're about Well, then if you're not about Jews, then people that disagree with you aren't anti-Semitic. You don't have it both ways. Like if somebody is going to claim to represent Judaism, then do so. But they're not doing that at all. Like that's not at all what they're doing. And my question for you, Rabbi, this is my big issue, is that the, the fear that I was, that I was raised with that post Holocaust fear-based mentality as if we don't have Israel, there's no, we, we have nothing. The Jews are, that's it. We're screwed. And it, the fear is not irrational, right? Like that's, it's a very rational fear, but then it loses its logical conclusion to having a national Jewish state will now keep us safe. Like that's where the the, the line can't logically be connected from a rational fear. I mean, is there how do you how do you explain to people that even though it's realistic to be fearful of anti-Semitism, having the state is not the solution to that?
5: Well, the simple answer is, are we more safe with the existence of the state of Israel? You know, Zionism, classical Zionism held that once there was a state of Israel, Zionist, uh, anti-Semitism would disappear. That was the answer to anti-Semitism. And, you know, the irony of all of this is that Israel really depends on anti-Semitism for its raison d'etre. It it needs to justify its existence because of anti-Semitism in the world. So I would say to people like that, well, what is the part of the world where Jews feel the most unsafe, you know? <laughs> this, let's look at the state of Israel, you know? Yes, there has been a rise, an alarming rise of anti-Semitism uh, around the world. But Israel is a an over militarized garrison state, you know, it, that Israel has become the focus of Jewish fear. So I would I would simply ask people, do you feel that we're more safe for having the state of Israel in existence? You know, yeah. the other the other contradiction is that, you know, I I believe it is anti-Semitic to associate all Jews with with the state of Israel and the actions of the state of Israel, absolutely. Um, But you know what? Israel calls itself the Jewish state. (laughs) Israel, by its very existence, associates itself with all Jews throughout the world. It is the state for the Jews. So we are all implicated, whether we want to be or not, in everything Israel does. So Israel can't have it both ways. Uh, They can't complain about the anti-Semitism when you know, people associate Jews everywhere with its actions. But then, you know, somehow, you know, try to claim that they are the voice and the home, uh, national home for all Jews throughout the diaspora. It's, it's, it's- I mean, it's
4: like the Islamic State, like in what that did to Muslims around the world. It's like-
1: So I look at my congresswoman calling out anti-Semitism and I'm like, no, 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 she's not anti-Semitic. You're an Islamophobe. You're seeing this whole thing wrong. So this, my guys, your friend here, Puts this up, not realizing that it was somewhat rhetorical, but I just think it was kind of funny. So it says, Rabbi Rosen, given the self-evident apartheid and collective punishment of the Palestinians, if the Israeli state doesn't recognize the long-term consequences of this behavior, shouldn't they be sent back to shul?
6: Whatever that means.
1: He thought it was like a question question. I'm like, no, that's rhetorical.
5: Yes, I think it's a, it's a statement more than a question. Yeah. Uh, it I, I would depend on what shul we're talking about, right? I mean,
1: yours in particular. <laughs> but, I mean, one of the things that really spoke to me a lot in this, this, and seriously, my mom is now like reading this to my father. This is very important. Um, is how much you focus on what really being Jewish is, and that to me it really gave me this sense of look, Judaism has existed long before Zionism, and it's going to exist long after it. Like that was sort of this almost thought that I had, like really disconnecting them, but the fact that you say all of these things that you're saying are actually Jewish tradition, more so than what the state of Israel is doing, saying, oh, this is a Jewish state, isn't based on Jewish principles. Could you talk a little bit about that?
5: Sure. Um, you know, you hear a lot today, you know, when we're going back to the issue of anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism, this conflation with with Zionism, which is a modern nationalistic movement that was part of many different modern nationalistic movements that were going on at the turn of the century, right? It's just this has happened to be one that that emerged in in Western Europe, uh, in in the Jew- in the Jewish world around the turn of the century was a radical break with Ju- what Judaism had been up until that point. Uh, consciously, I mean, it negated the diaspora. It said that Jews needed to go back to the land and create a sovereign state for the Jews, which is something that was absolutely forbidden, according to traditional Judaism. Uh, that could only happen when the Messiah came. Uh, you know, it was it was a radical break with everything that Judaism had been. And what's amusing to me is just really, you know, half a century later, uh, we're now saying that Zionism and Judaism are one and the same. Uh, so we need to really, and by the way, I want to say that it's not necessarily a modern Jewish movement that breaks with traditional Judaism. It's not in and of itself a bad thing, right? I mean, I'm, I'm a liberal Jew. I'm part of a modern Jewish movement that breaks with traditional Judaism as well. I think the issue is, is what it has created. What is, a, what is it advocating for? It's advocating for an ethno-national, exclusively Jewish state in historic Palestine, which is a place that has always been multi-ethnic and multi-religious. And has created a Jewish majority state that had to dispossess other people in order to exist, uh, and that is counter to just about every Jewish value that I could I could list for you. You know, um, I would argue that it's actually, from a Jewish values point of view, um, quite quite un-Jewish. I wouldn't deny the Jewishness of, uh, of of those who are Zionist. I just say that that's not the Judaism that we should be upholding um, in the world.
3: The, the Tikkun Olam.
5: Absolutely. You know, tikkun olam is a a central Jewish ethic of of healing the world. I don't think uh, ethno-national militarized states are, are involved in tikkun olam.
0: Neither do I.
1: So in this book, just for anybody who doesn't really, this is the rabbi put, it was a blog that you started in 08 or 09, and you, you printed the blog and the discussions that followed, which is really interesting. Like watching certain people like parrot certain talking points and just go back and forth. But it's really very interesting how um, different people view, what does that mean to be Jewish? It's very, very different for a lot of people and what that means, but I feel like at its core, we should kind of agree that it doesn't mean it's okay to to oppress another group of people. Like right? Like there should be a certain basic sense, and yet you are like more considered like fringe by the people like in this, then really it's just common sense.
5: Well, it's like Rashida Talib saying you can't be progressive and support apartheid. You just can't do it. <laughs> well, they, they it's say not possible. it's not apartheid.
1: They refuse to hear that. Right. They refuse to hear that. And even saying that is sacrilegious. You know what I mean? Like you can't.
0: Well, this is our generation's
5: South Africa. So, but Selim is an anti-Semitic organization then. Right?
3: That's what I keep pointing to. Right, right. It's a cabal of self-loathing Jews. I mean, an interesting argument I keep seeing and I'm going to have on my show, which is... Um, at youtube.com slash the Katie Halper Show. But on Tuesday, I'm having on, a, it's going to be a great discussion with Nora Erakat, who's a brilliant human rights lawyer, Palestinian American human rights lawyer, and Miko Peled, who is the son of a decorated Israeli general on the one side of his family. And then his mother's father was a signatory to Israeli independence. Um, and one of the things I'm going to look at is, I'm. I want to push back on some of the the talking points and there are a lot of them there really are but a a big argument against the fact that israel's an apartheid state is people are like well it's not racial the way it was in south africa and funnily enough some of these people are quoting amnesty international I'm like okay you're quoting an organization that has deemed israel an apartheid state um and you know this they don't i don't think people realize that by saying oh it's not racial the way it was in south africa they're actually like reifying race which is a social construct and they're giving it legitimacy and pretending like that that's a real thing that they were doing, whereas Arabs and Jews are one and the same. And I get the the like political I mean, I think that we do need to be focusing on the the, the fact that there is a lot of coexistence, despite the way that people frame it as like an inevitable conflict. Like Jews and Arabs just can never coexist. But obviously, that's not really the point of defining apartheid. Also, that,
4: that totally takes away from the fact that there are Jewish Arabs. They just don't call them that. Right. Uh, that Israel as a Zionist settler colonial country has imposed like a European history on, which is really unfortunate because some of the oldest Jewish communities in the world actually come from Arab countries. Uh, But I I just want to add to that to say like we should always remember the U.S. role here too, because at the end of the day, what is Israel? It's a European creation, right? It's a European settler colonial entity that imposed a sectarian state on the Middle East to act as a, um, basically to act as a tool of imperialism. And that's the, the role it continues to play today along with its uh, open allies like the United Arab Emirates, like increasingly the Saudis, um, at least overtly, they've always covertly been allies, like uh, all of these sort of despotic Gulf states. I mean, these are all weapons of imperialism in the region. And I always feel like it's very important To reiterate that, because so often you'll start to hear people say, oh, Israel controls US foreign policy. And while there, of course, is this like these like these like Israel lobbying outfits that try to uh, push for policies that benefit Israel in the region, that is just also default American policy for reasons that benefit America. Israel plays a major role policing the region whether whether we're talking about the role it plays against Hezbollah in Lebanon or against Iran basically just like helping to reinforce American hegemony across the Middle East and uh, I think that that the the best thing that can happen for the Middle East and for Palestinians and Israelis is for the US to be less involved. The, the less involved the US in the Middle East like is in the Middle East the more it forces players in the region to actually deal with each other um, and then doesn't give one side this like huge edge over the other side. So I feel like that needs to be a big part of like the way we talk about this discussion or the way we have this discussion and the sort of policies that we pushed is like the U.S. needs to get out and stop like arming this country to the teeth.
0: Couldn't have said it better. And I think that this is a great segue to what I guess was sort of the inflection point for you yeah it was my last job uh to get involved with this
1: um i mean i was always don't say i wasn't involved but to host this particular like the timing of this okay
0: but of course uh we all saw what happened to congressman levin in michigan um this was a uh a hit job if there ever was one um they did not now you know but but i kind of see it as um the whole concept of Israel apartheid, it's becoming somewhat of a wounded animal because now they have to go after their own. And the fact that they decided, OK, now we have to take out a person who is also a president of a Jewish congregation, who is also a congressman, uh, because he dared to suggest that Palestinians had equal rights to Israeli Jews. Uh, and who's a Zionist, by the way?
3: Yeah, it's so funny. Put
0: in uh, what did AIPAC put in? Five million dollars for Representative Stevens? Uh, to take him out. And the people who, and I happen to know somebody who worked on Stephen's campaign. She refuses to talk to me. She's like in total (laughs) denial about what actually went on in that campaign. Uh, Nevertheless, I think that that, what, what happened to Andy is a significant inflection point for a lot of people that should be looking at this as we really have to have an honest conversation about this right now. Whoever wants to jump in first.
1: Well, I mean, it was the impetus for me, mostly because not just that they went after somebody who's Jewish. I mean, they've I've been called self-loathing Jew by, you know, a lot of people. So it's not foreign to me. But the fact of how minor the, what what I would even say, an infraction, it wasn't like he even did anything. And they just sewed down his throat. And I think it really shows like it concerns me. And I do think the power of groups like APAC um, should be very concerning. To, to people, not just as that they're, you know, any lobbying organization, but how they completely reframe the narrative and keep us from really having discussions because there's no nuance. So you have people just accusing everyone of being anti-Semitic because you support BDS instead of having actual discussions. So it's almost like groups to me, like APAC are perpetuating this complete ignorance among a lot of American Jews and their refusal to accept reality. And it's very scary to me how powerful they're getting. So it was really more that than just oh they spent money against him. Yes, but they're changing the whole narrative so that they're. And I think it is because they're scared. I do. I think that that very well could be it.
5: I, you know, I think it's it's APAC and the Israel lobby, but it's also something that's going on in the Democratic Party right mm-hmm. now. And I think that's a really important piece. You know, the Democratic majority for Israel was very very involved in. These hit jobs during the primaries, and it wasn't only Andy Levin. I mean, there were there were democratic, progressive, democratic candidates across the country, who were basically shot down. And we see this war going on in the in the within the Democratic Party. I mean, I have to tell you, every time I hear Rashida Tlaib go up and speak her mind as a Democratic Congressperson, you know, this is a Palestinian who is saying these things as as a Democratic politician. Um, there are forces in the Democratic Party that are absolutely galled that this is going on and are trying to, what is to their mind, take back their, their power with, by any means necessary. Civil war that's going on within the Democratic Party itself. And, um, you know, I think it's playing out. Uh, they, they've chosen Israel as the arena to play this out. It's not the only place it's happening. But um, it's. I absolutely agree with you that it's something that we have to... Um, to pay attention to. Because what happened in the primaries was really, was really abysmal.
1: Yeah, they're only getting more powerful though. Like they're realizing how successful they were and they're really just heating up. Like they're, they're just getting going. And really my, my dream would be for there to be an anti-APAC pack. I, I would like there to be a pack that every time AIPAC donates money to someone, there's another pack that donates to the person that the APAC's trying to be. Like I'd love there to be like they match it, you know, that yeah. would be like my goal.
3: And the other thing that's so disturbing about this is that they always like none of these, like Democratic Majority for Israel, uh APAC, they never say explicitly when they're like campaigning against the person that they're bad on this question, that it has anything to do with Israel-Palestine. It's always about like, they try to just critique them in general and they they spend so much money on these ads and mailers and, and TV spots and then that person loses and then they pretend that they lost because of the Israel-Palestine thing, which they didn't even, people didn't even know about because they never talk about it in their right. ads against them.
4: Because no one's voting on that. I mean, mo- the vast majority of people are not voting on that issue. Um, so it's actually very smart on their part to do it that way. It depends right. on
3: where you live. I
1: got to tell you, like, this yeah. is
4: it's a big deal. Yeah, know, well, fair enough. But I just mean, like, it's very specific to, like, yeah. a district here or there. It's not yeah. an issue that, like, people in most places are voting on. Most people are not one-issue voters. Right. Um, and that issue, too, is, like, it's like the parties are so, they're basically the policy is almost identical that it's hard to even differentiate yourself. So it really will only play out in like primaries, uh, like with these like small democratic primaries. But this is a fight that's been ongoing, I think, since it really heated up in 2016 when Bernie Sanders made a huge pivot over this issue. Um, He, I mean, he went from, I remember in 2014, like there was uh, people who went to one of his, Town
6: halls. Town halls
4: in Vermont with some of his constituents. And it was during the war on Gaza that year was like probably the most vicious war to date that Israel has carried out against Gaza. And, you know, Bernie Sanders like had them had these like pro-Palestine people removed from his town hall. And he went from that to really changing, you know, his his views on this issue and changing how he spoke about it publicly yeah, in a pretty significant way. Going after I mean, I, you guys remember, remember there was a Brooklyn debate between him and Hillary Clinton, and yeah, I was there. you know, Hillary Clinton was like, "Hamas dresses up as civilians so that when they die, you count them as civilians," and then Bernie Sanders like. Was like actually Palestinians are like human beings yeah, <laughs> never, that's pretty much all he pretty much said Palestinians thinking, are human beings and Jake, Jake Tapper was like horrified like Jake yeah. Tapper was like it was as though yeah. he heard somebody like praise Hitler um, <laughs> yeah. and anyways it was a really big deal though because for the first time on a national stage somebody who had a real chance at the presidency was speaking this way and that I think is what provoked Democrats, pro-Israel Democrats, the elites of the party, uh, to really come out hard in as many ways as possible to try to suppress what is a, cha- a really dramatic change in public opinion, particularly in the Democratic Party. If you pull people on this issue, uh, the age gap is huge. But like anybody below the age of like 40 uh, sympathizes, I think, more with Palestinians, which is like, you know, that's horrible future prospects for being able to have a pro-Israel party. So they have to do these kinds of things.
5: Yeah, that's why the backlash is so fierce they know right. this is happening you know i remember that debate really well i and i remember the response that, i think bernie's words were we have to respect the the humanity of the palestinians yeah. and it, there was this huge uproar you know on both sides right. <laughs> i remember uh, i have at the time a palestinian friend of mine said this is how bad things are for us. That simply mentioning that we're human beings causes this much of an uproar. You know, yeah. the simple well, they, fact yeah. of, of acknowledging their humanity. And that, yeah. so we have to keep some perspective. But yes, it was a breakthrough, but it was a breakthrough just by mentioning that they happen to be human. Right,
1: the bar well, is so also, low. Yeah. Sharing a stage with someone who's still using that sort of human shield talking point on a national stage, right. which is not a true thing. Like that, so you have somebody running for president standing on a national stage and parroting a, something that we know isn't accurate and just gets away with it as if it's somehow just stating a fact
2: about
1: yes i'm talking um, about hillary um, the, the, yeah they're dressing up and so they could count this up. who says stuff like that that's like the people who say these are people that use their children as human shields
4: they love their children they don't love their children as much as israelis do they like arabs just don't right. they hate no. life well neither do Russia. the <laughs> Yeah. No,
1: none of those people love
0: their children. And I think it, it goes without saying that if you need any further proof that this is intentional, uh, look what happened uh, two weeks ago when the DNC uh-huh. met in D.C. And they had an opportunity. And again, they use this talking point. And God love Tom Hartman. He's on our show uh, many times. This um, idea well, loves- well, we have to fight back against the GOP. OK. That may work, but not in primaries. And the Democrats refuse to block dark money in primaries, which means that they are allowing APAC and every other organization that is, is, you know, corporate, pro-Israel, whatever. They all wouldn't even it. vote on it. They wouldn't even have a vote because they know they, they don't want to expose them. It's no different yeah. than bringing a floor vote on Medicare for all because they know exactly where the votes are going to fall. Like our ridiculously terrible representative we have here in South Florida. So it, it goes without saying that as much as they tried to continue to perpetuate this idea that well, we're really just fighting the bad guys. No, you're,
4: you're right. bad. You're all bad. You, you're you all so bad. bad. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I also think that, um, unfortunately there was also a backlash because a few years back, I'm sure you, you all might remember this. There was a lot of activism on college campuses in it was like they were, you know, a lot of pro-Palestine groups, and in fact, oftentimes led by like anti-Zionist Jews. Um, a lot of pro-Palestine groups across the country were making headway and basically like winning and taking over student counts, like student councils and and being able to like uh, divest, you know, put forth bills to divest from companies that profit off of, you know, Israeli occupation and even bigger than that to divest from companies that are a part of like the military industrial complex in general. And this was happening all across the country at schools across the country, even at Ivy League schools. Uh, And it kind of hit its peak around 2014. And there was a huge pushback against that also by the Israel lobby that was, I think, quite successful because now you just don't see the same level of like effectiveness on college campuses that you did. Five or six years ago, unfortunately. And one of the ways that was done was by using other wars in the Middle East to sort of fracture, fracture the Palestine solidarity movement, especially the issue of Syria, uh, which I think had devastating consequences on the Palestine solidarity movement and has like still has those splits still exist now, which is really unfortunate. But I think that's something that we have to like learn from as people who are in these spaces is the more successful we are. You know, in these small and big ways, the more successful our side is, we always have to accept like expect a very strong counter to that. Because what is being proven over and over again is despite sort of like history and public opinion, like being, you know, against Israel and in the favor in in favor of Palestine and in favor of liberation, it doesn't necessarily mean that's the way it's gonna go because the more powerful side is still the Israeli side, the imperialist side, the American side, and they have so much money, so many resources and a lot of tricks up their sleeve. Um, And so it's like, we have to like learn from these kinds of moments and be prepared with how to deal with them. And I think what happened to Katie is another lesson. And like, I actually did think, I was like, oh, the media censorship is, obviously the media is still totally one-sided on this issue, but like getting fired over it isn't happening anymore. That's really cool. And then what happened to Katie happened.
3: Over my style. Yeah, over your style. My oh, stylistic style. This wasn't, this wasn't Is it like your hair dress style? Or, or my like hair? The yeah the way you no. Yeah.
4: After three years of being at the hill, it took them right. three years to realize they didn't like Katie's style.
3: Yeah. I wonder what happens. That makes them that. You're, too, you're too honest. That's
4: but I do think that all of these things, when things come
1: together, the more they come together and the bigger the web gets, then it starts to become the inevitable shift. Like that's how it happens. So I just think it's important to kind of keep harping on it and keep kind of connecting all the people together that are on the same page with this. Um, I think it's really important for people to hear it from all different sides that this is what's happening, even though you don't like it. It's very uncomfortable for you to hear. And that's the key thing is a lot of the Jewish people are not willing to be uncomfortable. And it's very uncomfortable to do some of this, especially for people who previously had a lot of love for the idea of the state of Israel, who wanted to be make Aliyah and people who want to. And, you know, this was not easy for me. So I can't imagine how hard it has been um, for people like you, Rabbi, and that have had to like really have the, I call it a come to Jesus moment, ironically, but you know, like it's very hard. And so I understand how hard it is for other people to accept right. this, you know? And that's what it is. It's like they have a cognitive dis- dissonance that's massive. You have
2: a family member.
1: I do. Well, I have a lot of family one in particular. I have a few, I have family in Israel. Well, one of my cousins actually lived in one of the um, settlements and they're very gung-ho. Oh, they're in it to win it. And um, it's very unfortunate. You know i i just it's hard some people are just too far gone in that way but i'm hoping that we can reach a lot of people at least stateside that can be reasoned with um and when you teach people facts that they might want to incorporate that into their opinion you know like you might want to consider this information
0: and we really have to get yeah. better collectively on the left in particular and i shouldn't even say the left it's just it's the non-corporate you know working side of politics that. You know we don't seem to be very good at coalition building, and we really need to get better at it because the conservative side, uh, I mean, for God's sake, they're gonna potentially get Herschel Walker into the freaking Senate. I mean, that is just that that is because they all get in line and they yeah. all have a common mission, and that's it. They don't care what a buffoon he is, their attitude is, and give Dana Loesch, who's the head of the NRA, credit for what nothing. she know for what she said though, yeah. which is at the end of the day, the only thing that matters to us is winning. We don't yeah. care how crappy the person is. We don't care how much of a hypocrite he is or how much how pathetic it makes us look. If we have the votes and <laughs> we get to vote on what we want, then that's it. This yeah. is a this is a blood sport as far as they're concerned. Yeah. And for us, if we're trying to enact, you know, really serious change, you know, for any big channel that's out there that hasn't reached out to Katie to give her a platform to talk about how significant this is, you know, wake up. We all need to be working in concert together because yeah. it's the only way it's ever going to it's ever going to change. Uh Rania, you do an amazing job. And, you know, obviously, Rabbi, you know, what can we say? I mean, this would
1: you, great. Rabbi, would you come back on at some point? Because I actually really have some significant notes. Like I, <laughs> I, I could almost like write a dissertation at this point. So would you come back at some point and talk Good. about this book? Okay.
5: I'd, I'd be happy to. One Thank last, you. One last thing before Uh-oh. you guys go. Uh-oh. He feels no, the need
1: so. to do this no, for that's you. Not, that's not so so. It's necessary.
0: I just want to say Oh my church. God. Whoa. Wow, that's scary. That's trippy. My name was enacted, Katie. You're doing a wonderful job. I appreciate what you're doing, Rania. Wow. Keep people safe in the Middle East. It's very necessary. And Rabbi, I'm ever in Chicago. I'll come to one of your sermons. i wonderful. Listen, <laughs> good. the American people have not given up hope yet. I'm a very proud Jew, but of course, I understand there is apartheid in Israel, and I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for that, Jen. You know, just understand. It. I do. Keep fighting the good fight. There are a lot of good people out there who understand that Israelis and Palestinians can live together in peace and harmony. Like your good friend, Joe. My good friend, Joe. Joe is not your friend. No, Joe is definitely my friend. He's a good guy. And we're going to keep fighting. You know the midterms are around the corner. Don't know what's going to happen in '24. You're not going to drag me out to do a third term, but we're going to find somebody who's reasonable. Yeah, good luck with that. Part. Yeah, so, good luck, yeah. No, you're all doing a wonderful job, so I just want to come on here and say thank you for bringing attention to a very important issue and I uh, Feel so
1: like yet yeah, you're mocking
0: it. I'm not it's mocking all, it. Okay, so I wish you would fight harder. But listen, you know, like you say, you know, Bernie brought us to a to to a point where we're so much more aware now than yeah. we ever were five six years ago. And it is on us. He, he's right. It's not me. Us. It's like we all have to work collectively together. Good. And with that said. Uh, the floor is yours, Katie, you start, whatever you want to plug. She wants project. to plug the Katie Same. Halper
3: Show. Yes, yeah, so sure. Katie Halper Show. Also, there's a great article by Bronco Marchateach. Maybe you can put it in the show notes, but he wrote a great piece at Jacobin. It's called um, uh, Left-Wing Journalist Katie Halper has been fired for calling Israel an apartheid state, but read that because he reveals different interesting things at the Hill, like these conflicts of interest. They okay. hired a guy who used to be at the Israeli consulate. He ran the media for the Israeli consulate in um, New York. And yeah, youtube.com slash the Katie helper show, patreon.com slash the Katie helper show. If you just subscribe that, that helps, um, just like hitting subscribe and then pressing the bell, yes. liking the videos. Yeah. Thanks. You
1: okay, talk about dispatches. Cause I watch my dispatches. That's where yeah. I get the stuff that I would otherwise never know. I mean, well,
4: that's nice to hear. That's good to hear. Wow. So I, I work for breakthrough news. Everybody should go follow, uh, you breakthrough news on YouTube Uh, it's an independent media outlet. I'm so lucky to be able to work there. It's not very many like it exists. And I host a show called dispatches, which is a video and audio podcast. You can follow it on, you know, Spotify, Apple, and you can also, you know, subscribe to Breakthrough news on YouTube and you'll again, you know, uh, make sure you get the notifications or you, you know, click the little notification button and you can get a notification whenever there's a new episode. I do about one or two a week on all kinds of issues. And I, Pretty good at finding pretty cool guests. Um, so, and I also host the Freedom Side with Eugene Perrier every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. It's live. We always have like a bunch of guests on whatever is happening uh, in the news that week from, of course, a leftist perspective. So follow Breakthrough News. And of course, Breakthrough News is what uh, the outlet that you know produced Katie Halper's censored segment. So I think it's like a really good.
0: Fantastic job on that month. Yeah,
4: I yeah, know. I mean, it was, I mean, Katie wrote a fantastic script and delivered it brilliantly. Yeah. And I'm glad that we were able to like, uh, do stuff on the video side of that. And yeah, so you got to support outlets. You got to support outlets like breakthrough news. You got to support people like Katie helper, uh, so that we can make it, we can produce that stuff, but may also make it look really, really good because, you know, we need, really need resources for that. So for those who are watching, who can, I uh, encourage you to support. to do what you can to support our shows. My <laughs>
0: production values do bring in the eyeballs. There's yeah, no it definitely makes a difference. And
1: Rab- Rabbi, where can people find? I mean, I know. Do you still keep your blog? Is it current?
0: Yeah. Uh,
5: yeah. Just listening. I'm. I'm just a humble rabbi. I don't generate nearly as much content as Katie and Vanya. But uh, yeah, my uh, I don't blog as much as I used to. I was a blogging fiend. Um, but yeah. I do post. I. You want to read all my sermons, including one on anti-Zionism that I gave on Yom Kippur. It's um,
1: rabbibrandt.com.
3: You got to get on Substack. You should just write. Yeah, Substack yeah, yeah,
5: it's probably just a matter of time. Yeah. But well, you I...
1: write very well. Thank you. Thank Which you. I'm sure the truth is is that a lot of rabbis can write really well. I mean, it's not like that's a stretch, but it's it's very it's easy read and not complicated, but it's very good. I really liked it a lot.
0: You guys are fantastic. Thank you, for all that you do. Thank you for coming on, Katie, for having Rabbi, us. Rabbi. Thank much you, guys.
4: Us. Thanks, guys. Always a pleasure. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. See you
0: soon. Well, as you can imagine, it's um, it's not the easiest, like you said, topic to talk about. But when you have that type of support network having your back. It does make it easier.
1: It's getting bigger and bigger. It is. It's getting more and more acceptable.
0: And and again, the thing that I pointed out, which I think cannot be understated, is when, when Debbie tried to pull her little stunt, um, which she always does every once in a while. Like it's
1: a mitzvah.
0: The reaction to Debbie was overwhelming, not overwhelming, more than overwhelming, like almost completely negative. Good. Like Debbie, shut up. Please. Please. Or Debbie gets a hell out of Congress. Please. That would be wonderful, too. But well, we'll see what happens. Uh, I swear to you, people, if she was decent, I
1: wouldn't even be sitting here. But I would it, have been living my happy little mountain life, doing my little art. And you whatever. know what
0: I think Debbie does every once in a while? You feel like your mind's drifting away and you just want to get out of Dodge. And then Debbie's like.
1: She just is yeah. the gift that keeps giving, yeah. like, right, because she'll yeah. say something or do something <laughs> that infuriates me to no end, like her like if specifically you she, going after if, Rashida Talib. Now
0: if you think she infuriates you, I can only imagine how many people infuriate our last and final guest who we love very, very much, who has written a wonderful book called Prejudential.
1: Which I was, again, another one of those very inconvenient things for me to have to hear. Like, you know, it's like, that's the thing, people. You have to be willing to be uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable when you challenge a narrative that you've been used to in hearing. And one of those narratives, before we bring Margaret on, I just want to say this, because growing up in a very pro Zionist uh, community, family, so on and so forth. One of the entanglements that was an end result of that for a lot of people, cause I, I'm not gonna sound, there's no way I'm the only one, was this sort of irrational connection with a lot of leaders in the black community as being anti-Semitic? And back then I didn't know like any different. I'm like, why? And, and granted there very well might be some people in the community that are anti-Semitic, but the gist of that, was that these were black leaders that were speaking out in solidarity with oppressed Palestinians. And there is a very, very strong link, especially amongst the actual left, not the political left, the actual left, in terms of what settler colonialism is, what imperialism is, and oppressed people are oppressed people. And so there's this solidarity with like black liberation um, which to me, not necessarily confused with Black Lives Matter. I mean, it, it, that's more of just a modern kind of organization. I'm just talking about in, like, the theoretical Black liberation and oppressed Palestinians. And so I really wanted to talk about that. I think it's really important. And I have a certain amount of like guilt um, for not knowing more about this sooner and actually believing that people were anti-Semitic without even thinking about it so anyway that's that's where we are so
0: margaret kimberly is an historian a writer and an activist with peace and justice issues she is co-founder executive editor and senior columnist for black agenda report got to get danny haifung on the podcast she is the author of presidential black america and the presidents and ain't currently no it ain't margaret kimberly welcome back
7: to generational change hi how are you it's good to be here good
1: it's good to have you so the other person who was going to be on this panel had to cancel so it is all you it's all on you you (laughs) the entire black liberation movement right now no pressure no okay all right I I can do it (laughs) so one thing that I thought was really interesting so I was doing a little research yesterday and I came across this really cool um quote that this was a James Baldwin article that was written. I wanna say, I I didn't photograph the date. I know there were a couple of articles. I think this is one from like 70 something um, where he is talking about the state of Israel was not created for the salvation of Jews. It was created for the salvation of the Western interests. This is what is becoming clear. The Palestinians have been paying for the British colonial policy of of divide and rule and for Europe's guilty Christian conscience for more than 30 years finally, there is absolutely, repeat, absolutely no hope of establishing peace in what Europe so arrogantly calls the Middle East without dealing with the Palestinians. And so this was something from someone who most of their writing is about liberation and oppression and and imperialism. So I, and of course I never saw this connection then. So would you just talk a little bit about the history here and when, because I know there have been several points in in Black History in America, where there has been more of a connection to what is going on in um, with Palestinians.
7: Sure, thanks for having me. It's great to great to be back with you guys. Um, I, I I think it's um it's historic. I, I the first people, uh, Black people in the U.S. Uh, to talk about this. Uh, uh, dilemma of the creation of the state of Israel uh, as a settler colonial project, as a uh, product of imperialism of british imperialism that goes back a long way to i mean people think about i don't know lawrence of arabia or something like that which tells right. you the european powers how they carved up the middle east how they created some of these countries you know the borders of iraq were created by winston churchill or something like that so so there were people uh, anti-imperialist people the paul robesons the W.E.B. du bois and others who spoke um uh, about Zionism and the problematic nature of Zionism pretty early on. Um, we had uh, uh, people like Malcolm X who uh, visited Palestine in the early 60s and wrote about it, wrote a column called On Zionist Logic, I, I believe um, it was called. But uh, support right. for the Palestinian people for their human rights has been always been a mainstay of uh, the black radical tradition. Um, But uh, as that uh, tradition was marginalized politically, uh, along with, um, as uh, you were uh, saying in the previous segment, uh, marginalized politically, it's something that has been uh, uh, ignored or uh, condemned. Or um, as, as you were saying, people can very easily be called anti-Semitic uh, if they deviate from the support Israel, no questions asked narrative at all. Or if somebody makes a problematic, inelegant statement about Jewish people in the United States. Jesse Jackson's campaign, the Jaime town remark right. was, I mean, it's decades later, it's still brought up, Um so uh, it's a very, very long history. It goes into the, uh, the present day. Black Lives Matter, the organization, made a, a brief uh, uh, statement in support of the Palestinian people. Uh, la- uh, 2021 in May uh, was very, I thought, reasonable. But if you want to uh, marginalize anyone who says anything in support of Palestinians, then, of course, that makes it problematic, when it isn't, but uh, we have a very long and strong history here of um, uh, people making the connections with um, uh, apartheid, as that as was practiced in South Africa, and, and feeling um, uh, comfortable because it's you know the evidence is there that Israel is also an apartheid state. But the problem, of course, comes from the opposition uh which is uh israel gets bipartisan support um and as um the other things that you were uh discussing happen to black people but i think um it's even worse. There is, you know, when black people step out of line on anything, the punishment is always more severe. You had people losing seats in Congress, people of being afraid of losing uh, even any elected office. It can be even a local office like uh, here in New York in the city council. So those are some of the things that I uh, want to bring up today.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's really important. And I think that one of the things that always I had heard, like growing up, whenever somebody who was black would speak in favor of anything Palestinian, of course they'd be is anti-Semitic. But then there was this additional thing that was always thrown in, and this was definitely a Jewish community type of thing. Where, but we're so good to them, we're so <laughs> Jews have always supported black. Jews have always supported like that's the kind of like thought process and it was almost like they and I say they I mean I I never said that but that was the the cultural thing but it was almost like these Jews were taking themselves completely out of the fact that yes but you're also white you're also part of the imperialist western eurocentric problem so you <laughs> can't you can't disable that, but they're like, but we've always been good to the Blacks. Like, they really, and I'm telling you, literally, that's what I've heard say. Just
0: just, just just, take your cookie and be thankful. And
1: they that's really couldn't works. wrap their head around it. And to some extent, I feel like that also is very, the same thing for the, how the Democratic Party treats Blacks. It's almost like, but well, we've been so good to you.
7: Come out and vote for us. We've been so good to you. How could you not like us? Well, but you're right. I, and I know those uh, people who, um, uh, I remember the, the former mayor of New York City, Ed Koch, uh, who I never liked. But anyway, he's now dead. But I'm, I i don't feel like I can't say that I dislike somebody who's now- uh, Wait, wait, before you go on, I want to ask <laughs>
3: the famous quote from my aunt. If you have nothing
1: good to say about the dead, say nothing. They're dead. Good. There you
7: go. <laughs> so he, uh, Koch was- um, you know, a problematic uh, figure in New York City. I think he served three terms in late seventies. Um, um, I, I, I'm sorry, I think mostly the eighties and uh, early nineties. He um, he
0: was the, he was there in the late seventies to the early mid eighties. That was his. That was his that time. was it.
7: Okay. Um, oh, that's right. He was late 70s no it was 12 terms sorry i'm thinking i know he left office in nine so it's like late 70s to like 1990 he was mayor till till david
0: Dickens, and i think i I think it's 1990
7: but in any case he was uh, thank you um very problematic person i i always felt he was a racist most black people did uh but he was um very much dedicated zionist uh to the point where he uh and when uh, uh Reagan ran against Carter, I guess that was 1980, he practically endorsed Reagan. I mean, he had this party for him at Gracie Mansion, and then he said, Well, I didn't actually use the word endorsement, but he was he was angry about some uh UN vote uh at the UN that Carter had um uh supported. But he um uh in his racism um, his paternalist, very paternalistic and nasty, but he was a nasty person anyway, um, uh, Attitude towards black New Yorkers, he would always say, but I marched in the South, but I went down for the freedom rides. And that was always <laughs> one of the things that's supposed to shut black people up. All somebody has to say is, I fill in the blank with Dr. King. Right. I went down south. I protested against segregation. And that was supposed to be um, uh, the thing that would quiet any um, uh Uh, criticism from Black people. So he is an example. And I'm thinking of him as a prominent person who used to do that. But I've been, you know, and I can imagine him saying, I've been good to Black people. I I went went to to Mississippi in Freedom Summer. So what the hell? You know, everybody just be quiet. So uh, I think um, that's definitely something that Uh, does still happen. And now with the Democratic Party, it's even worse because, you know, it's like the the Republican Party or the the racist white people's party. And uh, we not only get this, you know, haven't we been good to you? I mean, it's been decades since you can think of anything uh, significant as far as I'm concerned. And those things happen as a result of the mass movement. So it was not like some benevolent act. Um, So it's, well, you have nowhere to go. You don't have anywhere else to go. What are you going to do? Are you to, and they still, you know. I feel like Donald. Uh, there needs to be a statute of limitation on Donald Trump's name. Uh, well, you know, it could be like Trump. You know, is is that what you want again? So we get this double and triple whammy totally. of um, of uh, uh, this this kind of a blackmail, political blackmail, and vote shaming and uh, racism uh, that can all be wrapped up together when Israel is uh, the topic of discussion.
1: Right, and I I also think that in certain parts of like the more left, in the real left, not the political left, the actual left, um, (laughs) that it's just common sense. It's common sense that oppressed people would relate to other oppressed people. Um, It's really not a stretch. And where it really becomes difficult, and I think especially here, is that most of the, I would say, centrist people, Jews in particular, still do not acknowledge that they are actually oppressing people. They don't. There's the, the amount of mental gymnastics that is required to to be a liberal kind of, you know, Jew towing the line. Oh, we need a two state solution. Whatever your little talking point is, the mental gymnastics is exhausting. And quite honestly, that's where I finally was like, you know what? I I, I am way too old and I, just, <laughs> I cannot. Keep doing this dance, and I think that people in the black community—they've just seen it before so many times. It's so commonplace that yeah, there's people being oppressed. Of course, there's people being oppressed. And I think that when we're talking about the Jewish community, by and large, is not in this country is not an oppressed people. In fact, they're generally a thriving people in this country, and so they don't understand what are we doing wrong. They're allowed. Wait, and the best one is. They allow Palestinians. They have parties. They're in parliament. They allow them to have votes, right? Like it's it's the same uh, mentality, and it's like, yes, well, black people can vote here too. Does that mean that their votes are properly? Moved? Well,
7: you know, uh, another thing that that happens here is I'm. I was thinking about this about this as I listened to you talk. There's this collusion where the media hides the worst. Um, policies in Israel. So, for example, uh, not only can Palestinians be evicted from their homes, but the government forces people to tear down their own house. And if you don't tear down your own house, they charge you uh, money for destroying, they're going to destroy your home, but if they do instead of you, then you're charged this fine of uh, thousands of dollars of little kids being used as human shields, the people right. who are in prison. I mean, I could, I could go on. I, you you all know gun? this stuff. Yeah, but uh, – um it's something that the media hide uh so for example when uh, amnesty international uh finally said what they should have said years ago that israel is an apartheid state they were either condemned or in the case of the new york times they just did not report it ever right. they just never reported it <laughs> so you hide the worst things all of the things that most sensible people would look at and say well that's wrong. So those things are hidden, and uh, I I think it helps people who are going through those mental gymnastics to defend their position because they get to use all the positive talking points. Well, there's Arabs in Parliament. There's something like that. With and but they're not confronted with the things that that no one can deny are the nature of an apartheid state so and there's political collusion um, where uh, politicians are um, so for example here in, in uh, New York City where I live, members of the city council now they're local elected officials they don't have anything to do with foreign policy but they always make these junkets to Israel always. And whoever's ahead of the city council, uh, when there's you know the next attack on Gaza, will say we stand with Israel. Israel is being terrorized, you know, while there are people, other people in Gaza, being terrorized. Uh, so that sends a message that even if uh, you're a local or state elected official and you don't have anything to do with foreign policy, it's clear that's where the line is going to be towed. If you want to raise money and you have to raise money to run for office then you won't get money or somebody who runs against you will get money instead of you, all of those things serve to, um, to silence. Uh, but the people aren't fooled. And so you may, um, uh, uh, people may silence themselves, but they have not changed their minds. I think 90% of black people, if you ask them, uh, would say that pal- just to, in very general terms, they know black, that Palestinians are being treated unfairly. They know they're being oppressed and they want that to stop. Uh, but uh, all of these things that we've talked about, Um, uh, diminish that uh, level of uh, outspokenness that people should have.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, we've been talking since we started this about like the Zionist narrative and it's very propagandized. It's very one-sided. It's very controlling. um, And not just here, I would imagine it's probably the same in a lot of like in Europe and places like that, just like kind of Western centric idea of what is going on. And so I still would like to believe And and maybe I'm wrong, you know, that if my great grandmother was told, okay, there was this thing, it was called the Nakba and all these people were displaced and killed and that's what needed to happen, that they would have said, oh, no, 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 that's not good. No, no, no. They were never taught that. They were never told that. And that same false narrative is still being perpetuated, whether it's things like, yes, the Hamas uses children as human shields. Um, you know, these kinds of narratives are what our media is portraying. Mm -hmm. And so it's exceptionally hard to get people to think things are oppressive when we can't even get facts. You know, like, I just want, if everybody Mm -hmm. had the same facts and then you decided, oh, I think Israel should still be an ethnocracy and we, the Jews still need a place, fine. But you can't say it's a democracy. And you can't say it's not an apartheid state. You have to own what it is. You cannot have an ethno state without an cleanse. It doesn't work. And and there are just too many people that are not seeing what's going on there because this information is so censored and so not available where we need it to be.
0: And credit to Yulene New, who should have been the next congressional representative of New York's 10th congressional district. Uh, You know, she spoke out against... Mm-hmm. Uh, Israel apartheid and the middle and of a congressional race in a very Jewish congressional district. And that takes guts. Like it really does. And she should be the Congresswoman, but we all know how New York politics <laughs> is, Margaret. <Yes>. Um, <laughs> it, but sometimes it pays to be principled. Now I don't know if Jen is going to run against Debbie again, but I do know that just by doing this, you know, your attitude was, well, look, if I am going to be a formidable, you know, opponent to Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Apex is going to get involved. So I might as well play offense, then play defense, because everyone else plays defense yeah. when it comes to Apex.
6: I'm not
1: waiting for them to come for me. I'm throwing down with them. You want to come for me? That's fine. You want to tell me I'm a star? <laughs> I am just over you. I am so done with them stealing the narrative. As a Jew, quite honestly, I feel used by Zionist movement, I feel lied to, I feel betrayed, I have a lot of anger. And so if people like APAC wanna come at me and try to like out Jew me, I will play them every single time because Judaism existed long before Zionism and it's gonna exist long after and we don't
7: need your nonsense anymore.
1: That's how I feel.
7: Well that's great. I mean but we we need more courage. It's uh not only do we need people to have that kind of courage that you described but uh we also need mass movements. The reason the propaganda works and the media and the money is that we have this dis- this politics that disconnects um uh people and deliberately so on any number of issues. They don't want people to have uh, the uh, voters to be uninformed. Uh, and if voters are uninformed, they can get away with a lot in yeah. um, any number of ways. But but I also want to call out these people who you know want to pretend they don't know. So how does it happen that after, for example, the BDS movement starts to take hold, that state after state after state basically make uh BDS illegal? Um, so, most states have said that they, you know, they'll be penalized some way that uh, you can't get state money if you boycott Israel, or some states make. I remember Texas. I think there was a court case that finally did away with it. If you were just a contractor yes. for the state doing anything, you had to sign this oath, in effect, saying that you uh, would not or even speak about boycotts of. Um, of Israel, so those things don't happen by accident. So I think people, you know, it's it's you know so so helpful to be innocent, right, and claim you. people speaking you know play it's playing dumb, and as far as um, as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah, well, certainly. And as far as our political people, like, you know, someone like Debbie Wasserman Schultz doesn't get, I mean, she could sit there and just accuse everybody of being anti-Semitic, but I don't buy for a minute that she doesn't know the truth, right? Like, I don't believe that for a second, but I'm just regular people who, who really are not exposed to the right amount of information. Most of my Jewish friends never heard of the Nakba, never heard
7: of it. Well, I didn't. I'm going to say I heard the word Nakba maybe 10 years ago, maybe 10 years ago. And I thought of myself as this well informed nobody's that well informed you always learn something new but um I heard the term and I and I remember being very angry that I was like, how have I gotten to be middle aged and I never heard this word Nakba, which is catastrophe I believe in yeah. in Arabic um that uh, after the state of Israel basically uh, Palestinians being pushed out um, of uh, of the country refugee camps and um it's something it's one of many things we aren't taught in school um and so there is official propaganda it's the media it's hollywood i mean think of the movies that were made about israel it's always israel is the hero or the, the victims of uh, of uh, terrible people. I mean, there've been a couple movies made about the um, after the Israeli athletes were killed at the Munich Olympics Munich. and, and um, uh, Israel sent these commandos out to kill people who were responsible, some of whom were not responsible. Also that's never brought up, but it's just, it's uh one-sided. These people were the evil people. These people are the good people. And, um, uh, and uh, so the uh, the corporate media, the news media, the entertainment media, uh, um, we get it from every direction. And then, of course, you have people who are afraid. So, as you know, you were saying in the uh, with the last guest, Bernie Sanders, all he said was, "Palestinians are human beings." <laughs> oh my God! What did he say about the Palestinians? So it uh, uh, feeds into this, uh, it's very insidious, so people can claim they, you know, don't know, and other people can know, but they're afraid. Um, so uh, you see things like there's a congressman in New York, um, uh, his name is Richie Torres, his district oh, is yes. part of the Bronx, and he um, is like, a, he's a black and la- black and Latino. Uh, and he has become the representative, the most gung-ho Zionist in Congress. He was first a city council member. They redrew his district to make sure he got a bigger chunk of Zionist uh, <laughs> votes. And he's like the most reliable guy. Um, and, and he's also gay. So it's like, aha, uh-huh, so yeah, that is no, you. No,
1: know, my God, he's a Democrat's dream. Black,
7: Latino, and gay. My uh, God. Yeah, more and, and and Zionist? disabled. That would be it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that could don't listen. Don't say that too loud. Next thing you know, you may show up some.
0: Yeah, somebody um, be coming after us for making such a statement. No,
7: I
1: no. I'm just they love their, I mean, I think this their
7: is obviously uh, he has become the, the poster child for Zionist politics in New York City, uh, and it's um. Uh, and it's, it's quite terrible, but, you know, people will, will uh, unfortunately go along. And even people who are somewhat progressive, who can be reliably, accurately described that way, they will not cross this line. They will not touch it. And all of that, which is very sad, and it just uh, marginalizes um, uh, people so badly, marginalizes very reasonable um ideas marginalizes. Uh, and, and in May of 21, when uh, Black Lives Matter made their statement, there were huge pro-Palestinian marches and they just ignored them like the Times did with Amnesty International. They just ignored them.
1: Yeah, well, that's the best way to do it. That's the smartest yeah. thing you can do is pretend it's not happening, and then most people, because most people just sit there and they'll turn on CNN or read the Times, and that's their news. That's how they know what's going on in the world. What, right. I,
0: what I what I did find very interesting was when Jen released her statement in response to Wasserman Schultz pulling her, you know, her, her kneecap attempt on Katie Halper and Rashida Tlaib and all of them. Uh, that Jen was very forceful in her rebuttal. <laughs> And the next thing you know, when I had a message her the other day, I'm like, you know, who's following you on Twitter now? Who, oh, Richie Torres?
7: <laughs> <laughs> of course, following you. Yeah, I love these people who follow you with evil intent. You know, they want to make absolutely. make sure they can uh, find some statement that they uh, can attack. But when I when I do notice that, I block them. I'm like, no, I'm not going to make your life easier. So I don't. <laughs> I
1: just own it. And and the the reality is is that. I feel like if I put everything out there, then anything anybody else is going to say about me is old news. Well, it's, it's not good. going to be anything that's that interesting. It just isn't.
0: No, and you do have to have sort of a you know a, a Trump-like "f you" attitude, which is you know you got to be Teflon. You just got to say, look, my int- especially with somebody like Jen, intentions that are good, and the only people who are trying to knock you off are people that have bad intentions because again, it goes against their corporate narrative. Richie Torres. If he's not already getting paid a lot of money for speeches, it's going to happen sooner, than, sooner rather than later. It's a career. It is lucrative. It is beneficial for today and for many years to come. Even somebody as pathetic and as incompetent, yes, that's what she is, our, our con- congressional representative, she <laughs> has been extremely lucrative for Debbie to do what she does. That's why she blatantly does insider trading and doesn't care who knows it. It's like I am the system,
7: I sure. Love the system. sure, and it's you know, and I'm glad you brought that up it's uh you know uh Zionism in american politic- politics politics it's just it's just one of the many forms of corruption so it's it's not as though everything else is fine and there's this one bad thing uh so you have uh, this bipartisan uh um uh, effort when it comes to imperialism in general. So, for example, Israel really hit the jackpot when Trump was elected. So, he did, you know, it was like off the charts pro Israel stuff. So, moving the US embassy to, yeah. to Jerusalem. But then Biden gets in. Does he change anything that Trump of did? Not. No, oh, really? no. Uh, so that's the they, thing.
0: they just don't like Our the lesson. way that Trump sells it.
7: Exactly. exactly. So um, you know, all of these, uh, you know, Biden's foreign policy is mostly Trump foreign policy, except worse. Actually. Why? Oh, listen, Audrey, I, think... I am
0: with you 1000%. You know, when someone <laughs> would ask me, where is Biden worse than Trump without question on foreign, foreign, foreign policy. policy? So we Not have a question policy.
1: from, I think it's farmware. Farmware. To what extent Margaret, do you think the electorate is at fault for not being better informed?
7: Uh, I, you know, I, on the one hand, I think um, people should read blackagendareport.com. You should yes. be yeah, better, better informed. Uh, but it, it's hard. I don't want to blame most people. It's, uh, you know, we're, we're told that there are these acceptable news sites. So if you read The New York Times, you're going to be, oh God, un, uh, they're basically a mouth. It's It's such a... It's sad to see the way they've declined. They're just a big mouthpiece for Biden now. On any number of issues, you can tell they call the White House before they write about any subject. Oh, absolutely. Um, but uh, or the the networks or CNN or the other major newspapers, um you know, the state of journalism has declined in general. Uh, uh, which shrinks the number of outlets in the country. Um, uh, there are just fewer papers, fewer radio stations, fewer jobs in media. So that shrinks the narrative and that um, diminishes so many things. Um so I, I don't want to blame people I want to encourage people to think for themselves to look for um, all the alternatives you know it's interesting the way people use communication it's like if you're going to be on Twitter at least look for people who are saying something different you know don't just talk about some dumb celebrity no or I want to have, a,
0: I wanna have a, a needle and a Ukraine flag and uh <laughs> resistance and, a, and again it's like they don't understand That you're no different than MAGA. You are mindful. You are legitimately in a cult. You can't think for
7: yourself. No, you're absolutely right. I think it's funny when, uh, especially now they're bringing up January 6th again. You can tell election day is approaching. But. The way you
6: totally bringing me up for a very good reason, and I'm going to explain it to you, Marjorie. I'm going to tell you why. Her I'm name's Marjorie. No, her name's Marjorie because that's what I call her. Because you but
1: like you like the space laser. or no? Believe me when I tell
6: you, they totally bring up my name, and this is why. Because I am really great for ratings. I'm really great for the Democrats. Well. They totally deny it, but they understand that we're going to make America great again. Again. And we're coming back in 24. And why are we coming back? Because they're losing, their ratings are terrible. They can't get anyone to watch, but they watch me, they know I'm great. That's why they talk about January 6th. And after the midterms, after we after the red wave, it'll be a beautiful big red wave. We're totally going to take over. And then they're going to be talking about Trump 24, 24-7. That Ron DeSantis he has no chance.
1: Oh, yeah, that's what I think.
6: No Nina Turner, no Marion Williamson, none of these videos. It's Trump now. It's Trump tomorrow. It's Trump forever. Go. Make America great again.
7: Again. again. Terrible. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I was looking forward to that, actually. But uh, <laughs> I love it. I do love but it. The truth
0: is, if we're being completely honest, <laughs> the reason they don't stop talking about him is because they secretly want him back because he's the, he's the biggest cash cow Of this generation. There's nothing. And
7: and he keeps them from doing anything. He He distracts people. So all you have to do is say the word Trump. I see people, they're ready to critique Biden about something or ask a question or why can't we have fill in the blank? And somebody says the word Trump, and that's it. So of course they've resurrected him now, and of, uh, but being who he is, you know he, uh, you know this stupid thing with trying to hold on to these documents—it's the dumbest thing ever. I think it's just Trump's personality, frankly. I, I think there's less to it than meets the eye, actually. Yeah. In uh, Jerusalem, he can do anything that Israel wants and it's covered up. But to answer that question about the media, um, it, it's by design. People aren't uninformed just because they. The thing that's worse to me is that people try to be informed. They but do. if. Uh, But then if you pick up the usual paper or turn on the television news, you don't know anything you need to know. So I think there is an effort. But um, uh, sadly, uh, it's thwarted by this this collusion um, among the media, among both parties. And um, so, yeah, so you end up with uninformed uh, and who said that? Uh, if you don't read the paper, you're uninformed. If you do, you're misinformed. I can't remember. Well, misinformed
1: is the bigger issue. Like there's definitely people that are uninformed,
7: but a lot of people
1: that are uninformed will tell you they're uninformed and they're OK being uninformed. I've met those people. Yeah. Those people Fact are not as dangerous as the people that are misinformed because the people that are misinformed think they're informed and are making decisions accordingly. That's the real, that's the real. I read the New York Times. Right. You,
7: I watch CNN. I, I, they
0: speak the truth. Yeah.
7: I watch and listen to NPR, or, you know, and uh, that's the blue mega that, you know, that they oh, yeah. want to sneer and look down at people wearing a mega hat. But it's like you're just as deluded. You're just deluded by a different group of people.
0: Margaret, I think the best place to wind down this very informative conversation of the day. Uh, I have been I don't want to hold on to this until Monday night. I think it has to be talked about. Uh, now. Uh, what are we the complete fawning? over Nancy Pelosi over the past 48 hours who has been would so do that? disgusting.
1: What happened? They, this is why I don't watch the news.
0: They have. Been, this is the woman who is going to give the GOP potentially a red wave in the midterm. What did she because do? Because they will not. She is the reason why the insider trading bill doesn't oh. get brought to the floor. And yet they're talking about this woman every single day. Effing blue check mark uh neoliberal <laughs> hypocrite within the beltway. Nancy Pelosi is a national hero. Yeah. Do you know
7: what <laughs> she <did? laughs> Why was her daughter in the capital of January? 6th? what, what she, she follow her mother around all the time or or what? Oh, I don't I- understand. <laughs>
0: and, the, and the entire time, the only thing that that I can think of is, and I wanted Jen to put out a tweet that basically said, "If I say that Nancy Pelosi is a national hero, how much am I going to get paid for it?" It's like it's so uh, transparent. It wouldn't
1: obvious. matter.
0: It wouldn't matter.
7: And it won't. And I have to tell you, what's even worse, if the Democrats lose control of the House. Uh, In November, it will not matter to those people. None of them will say what happened. None of them will say our leadership sucks. They won't say anything. No, they don't be a hero. They don't mind losers.
1: The Republican Party doesn't take losers. They actually get rid of losers and bring in people that can win. (laughs) Democrats will celebrate their losers. And not only that, then they'll hire them to run other people's campaigns.
0: How about that? (laughs) Henceforth, and and again, we're going to get into this much more with Jordan Sheraton on Monday night, but there's a reason why, out of all the people running for office right now, John Fetterman is the cream of the crop, specifically (laughs) because of what just came out today. Josh Farrow actually released information that Fetterman was willing to make public. We, the Democrat, is it the Occupy Democrats or Democratic Coalition, whichever one that Scott Tworkin runs, and we've got that guy, Grant Stern, down here in Miami, who was basically troll watching Jen when she was running for Congress. I like trolls. Uh, They are a grifting organization. It turns out that they have raised millions of dollars, and about 80% of it goes to pay their consultants. What a shock. Who couldn't have seen that coming with the Democratic loser party and- As it turns out, Fetterman decided to say, you can go F yourselves because they've wanted his business. They want to get paid by the Fetterman campaign. And he told them to kick rocks. And so as far as I'm concerned, and maybe I'm being a little conspiratorial here, the reason why I think Dr. Oz has closed the gap on Fetterman is because once he told the Democratic consultant class to kick rocks, they decided, OK, now we're going to work on behalf of, Fe- of uh, Oz and we're going to do it behind the scenes. They're very
7: principled that way. Oh, absolutely. And and can we talk about the so-called down-ballot Also part of the They do not care about these local races. Democrats have lost hundreds of seats over the years, and there is absolutely no effort at the top to get them back. We talk about that a lot. Oh, my God. It just makes me crazy.
1: Yeah. Well, and we tend to focus very much so on our local races and especially on nonpartisan races. And what we find, which is so ridiculous, is that even in our nonpartisan races, the people down here still want to play partisan politics like they cannot get out of their own way. And it's like I tend to like those races more because there's no nonsense in terms of Mm -hmm. tribal crap. And yet the tribes still try to make it tribal.
0: Yeah, we we know people that are in it that you know we, we like, but they're they're thinking that well, if I just kiss the ring a little bit harder, maybe <laughs> they'll hold me. Like, no, if you're not a corporate sellout, then it's not there is like an you. there is an understanding about how this is done, and they know right away whether you're on their team or not, and so you got to work around it. What. Jen has working in her favor is that she has become somewhat of a known commodity politically. Debbie is the most atrocious of representatives this country has. Florida is becoming a completely out of sight, out of mind red state. And a lot of it, and in terms of DeSantis' assent, not just to re-election, which he's, with all due respect, he's going to be (laughs) re-elected. Oh, (laughs) bye. He's heading for the presidency right now. And one of the biggest reasons that's happening is because of the ineptitude of the Florida Democratic Party. They're
1: allowing it and have every step of the way. They have no resistance. They never have. And well, the truth is, you've got just like Democrats would prefer Trump to Bernie. There are it's, it's the same mentality. They don't hate DeSantis, not the Democrats at the top. They don't care Uh, one way or the other. They get to do their insider trading. It doesn't matter who's where.
0: This is exactly why they have a heart attack over the word socialism. You know, (laughs) Bill Maher, to his credit, did a fairly decent job of explaining the support of Herschel Walker in Georgia, but he had to throw the word socialism in there. Why? As if to say that that's the reason. No, the most successful countries on earth have a hybrid system of capitalism and socialism. So if you think that you can just arbitrarily dismiss that Socialance. word it's you know again you can't they as you like to I say, just ask
1: them to define what they mean by socialism most people don't have any idea exactly
7: exactly and a lot of people called socialists aren't it's like the the you know people think of AOC as a socialist or Bernie as a socialist oh, the word. liberal democrats of decades ago um yes. are out outflank them to the left. I, I, I cannot tell you by how much. I can't believe that these milquetoast people get to be called socialists. And I've often said of AOC, for example, I wish she had actually done something to earn the scorn she gets from the right. She hasn't done anything. So it's like, what do you hate her for? She doesn't do anything except pose in another fashion photo shoot. She should have, you know, she needs to just do something else for a living, but yeah. she would not have as good a grift anywhere else. No, I look, I've been
1: called communist Karen. So like I I've got communist Karen. But you know what so yeah, it's actually what's great is in theory. And I that's why I always say the theoretical left and right because I try to, for the people like you who understand when you talk to people here they think democrats are the left. And I'm like no that that's not the left. There is a left, but that's not it. And so it's funny to me because I actually in theory wouldn't be the worst communist. I love the idea of a uniform. I really do. I think we should have three cars, like small, medium and large. I am totally good with everybody just living with it. You know, their small little communities and everybody, but the real sense of commune, like I could actually kind of get with that a little bit. Community. Um, Yes, actually, (laughs) ironically in Israel is where there is, you have kibbutzes, which are very truly run like that, which is ironic. Listen, I,
7: I, and and speaking of of Israel again, they have a national health care program. Our taxes go to pay for their health care, which we don't get. And a living wage and everything. I have a friend having surgery on Monday who had to pay half the bill already um, in order to be admitted to the hospital. I mean, we could go. We all know the horror story. Yeah. Uh, no. But they don't have that in Israel.
0: No, but yeah. again, it speaks to, and and again, it, and I think this brings the conversation full circle. It speaks to the issues that so many people have with the Israeli government, so many of the issues that people have regarding Russia and Ukraine, and so many of the issues regarding China and Taiwan. We do not, it, it's like, you want us to focus on the GOP, and yet our house is literally on fire. <laughs> Yep. You're not willing to deal with the fact that you have to clean your own house first before you worry about what's going on elsewhere. That's the biggest misnomer that I, I still don't understand how people think they're going to continue to hoodwink millions and millions of people if eventually they're starting to figure this out. And that's why they had to censor Katie Helper because at this point, that's where we are. They have to shut you up because enough people are starting to hear it and think, you know that actually does make a lot of sense. And if, listen, if, there,
7: if we had a real free press that people think we have, and all the information that we discussed uh, was something that was known to most people, we'd have a completely different policy towards Israel. Completely different. Yeah. So it's um, the intimidation works. They and they they do it on purpose. They know that they have to because if they didn't do it, uh, people would demand something much better.
0: How can people find you? The Black what Agenda are you, Report. Yes. What are you, what are you working on? Anything in particular you want to mention before you well,
7: go? People should I should take this opportunity to buy my book, Book. I don't know if it's a uh, blurred. Yeah, prejudicial. You. There we no, go. I don't have it with
1: me, but I have actually, I, you know, I audio booked it. And guys, if you do audio book it, it's Margaret. She does. It's me.
7: It's me. So buy my book, blackagendareport.com. We have new issue every Wednesday. I'm on Twitter at Freedom black- Ride Blog.
1: Something like that. It's, it's prejudicial, but it's the pre- wait, it's black pre- Americans and the presidents. Right. Prejudicial. Right. Oh, I. Know. I know that was like one of the, that was like my bubble burst, you know, not that I really thought any of them were great, but you know, I really, I held that, you know, I was holding on hope for Carter and that was that. And uh,
0: (laughs) Jimmy Carter is the reason we got Ronald Reagan. But you know what I, what
1: I want to like to say, summarizing, like for me, this whole deconstructing Zionism thing, people don't understand how hard that is. It's not from a place of hate. It's from a place of love. Like I love, Israel, like I've been there, I have family there. It's so beautiful. It's so spiritual. Like this doesn't come from a place of hate. It comes from a place of love, but recognizing that we need to love everybody that's there. Um, and it's very, very hard. Like this has not been easy for me, for a lot of people to like hear. It's very inconvenient, and I try to equate it. Like it's not just finding out that Santa Claus isn't real, people. This is finding out that Santa Claus is a mass murderer. Like, I don't think people really understand what that's like for someone raised as a Zionist to hear it. But that's basically what it is. It's very unsettling. And um, thank you so much for coming on because you made it better.
7: Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great fun. Absolutely. Always Always a pleasure, my friend. Thanks, Margaret.
1: Always. Bye-bye. Bye-bye,
7: though.
1: Overall, fairly successful. I would say so overall fairly successful i i would like to keep i think i'm going to keep this going and like just periodically have people on yeah, and when a few we months. like when we bring someone on to talk about this issue i'm just going to kind of keep going back to it i think it needs to keep being harped on
0: how about margaret saying oh i was hoping you'd do your Trump." oh you live for that shit, <laughs> man you live for that ah, it's always funny it's all in good fun whatever so funny.
1: guys thank you so much for for watching Indeed. and supporting we've had a lot of good support um, tonight, and I appreciate it, and I'll be thinking of that when I'm getting skewered <laughs> over the coming weeks because this is not going to necessarily be um, pretty. Like I'll be getting phone calls. Yeah, we'll
0: be talking, but uh, as you guys know, back to the regular time, we'll be at seven thirty on uh, Monday night. We're uh, having. We will have Wayne Clark, who is running for Plantation City Council, and I voted for him. And we are looking forward to that conversation. He was very good to us when Jen ran, and of course, he was running against. Uh, uh, Greg Toney, uh, for the sheriff uh, position of Broward County. Wayne
1: Clark was a candidate for sheriff. Definitely Broward, would have and we made a better one. And of
0: course, right now, not a surprise. Sheriff Tony is um, also under investigation.
1: He was under investigation from the beginning. Sure. Like apparently in Broward, that's a real selling point. So for anybody under any sort of like FBI investigation, come here and run for office. Listen,
0: I have lots of issues with our forever government or forever shadow government, if you will. But the one thing I will say about the FBI, to their credit, they don't get involved in cases unless they really got goods. They close about 95% of their cases. Oh, it's more than that. So yeah. when the FBI literally is investigating you, you've done something wrong. Right,
1: by the time we know of an investigation, it's done.
0: So when people constantly say, when is the FBI going to go, when is the FBI going to get involved? Well, let me tell you, when the FBI does get involved, you it's better run. Game That's over. all I can say. So unfortunately, that was where Wayne was uh, running for the. And I will tell you, the biggest argument against voting for Wayne, even though this is a nonpartisan race, right. is that. Wayne is not a Democrat, so we can't vote for him. Even though it's a nonpartisan race. Correct. So that's the mindset, and so voting for Greg Tony, who actually was nominated or was a uh, he was appointed, appointed by Governor DeSantis. DeSantis. Man, he DeSantis really just owns the whole show. He oh, really and specifically does. and specifically South Florida very well. I mean, let me tell you, this is when DeSantis wins, and he will win. Right. It's not. It's it's not, it's not. the latest poll that came out from. Uh, it wasn't the Siena College poll, but it was another poll. The most recent one that came out within the last week has DeSantis at plus eleven.
1: That's you're not sense.
0: closing the not only are you not closing the gap, but you really have to wonder just how bad of a loss this is gonna be. It's
1: gonna hurt Peter. So that's gonna hurt Peter. Anyway. Just saying. Cause why? Because you know why. You want to forget that, that happened because you don't want I that, that forget to happen. Nothing. All right. Because he I and I have it right. over. I think DeSantis is going to be Chris by more than 10. I
0: say it's, I said it was said 7 to 10. He I said it, said it was but seven he thinks it's
1: under 10. I think it's going to be more than 10. Seattle
0: College, which is considered one of probably the five most accurate polls in the United States in terms of their accuracy, they have like an A or A plus rating. Uh, they have DeSantis at a plus eight. So they literally have it right in the sweet spot of where I predicted this race was going.
1: I like the one that said plus 11. All right. And by the way, the night is young. And let me tell you, the DeSantis ads that are running nonstop are really good.
6: Yeah. Shout out
1: to whoever's doing his ads, because especially the one with Casey DeSantis.
6: You can't beat that. You can't beat that. And then
1: you've got Chris that writes his own smear ads because he says shit like, thank God for Joe Biden.
0: Yeah, you can't. Well, again, it's like if you're going to have you have to read the tea leaves. And this is part of the reason and maybe I'm wrong here. But one of the reasons why Charlie is probably not only going to lose, but is going to lose by a wide margin. Tim Ryan, who no one thought was going to be, you know, literally within striking distance of J.D. Vance in the Ohio Senate race, but apparently is in a dead heat. And one of the things that Tim Ryan has made very clear is that he doesn't want to. Joe Biden anywhere near his campaign in Ohio. He has kept it that way. He doesn't think that he has said publicly, I don't think Joe should run for another term. He doesn't want Pelosi or any of them coming to Ohio. Good for him. But as a result of him speaking his mind, The Democratic establishment has basically not been giving him funds to compete. with. Okay, however,
1: so that'll be a wash then because he'll also have the benefit of not having them involved because other I I mean, I think he's going to lose. I really thought that this was Vance's to lose
0: like from. I did as well. But Jim Ryan, to his credit, if you do happen to watch Kyle's breakdown video, Kyle Kolinsky's secular talk. He does do a very good job of breaking down in about 15 minutes exactly what went down in their debate. And I have to say. With the exception of a couple of points where I thought Tim Ryan was completely off, he really nailed J.D. Vance to the wall. Like, he really did a great job. He was like, we got the receipts. You ain't talking your way out of this. And he was forceful. He took the fight to him and he said, hey, you know, we got to, and again. I just don't see it for him. I'm not feeling it for him. Maybe not. But he did fight on the playing field of, I am not just going to play the vote blue no matter who card. I'm gonna stand up for these principles. And again, corporate money indeed is behind Tim Ryan, but Tim Ryan is very much a labor guy. So gotta give him that, if nothing else. Not gonna hear him touting Medicare for all living wage or any of that, he's but pretty he's definitely nut-tose. pretty aggressive. The fact that, that we right.
1: have to be celebratory that a Democrat is supported, supports labor is how far we have fallen. We like have That's fallen kind of ridiculous. Far. Like that should just be the given. And yet we're here like, oh, but he supports labor. Yeah, because they're supposed to. That's They're supposed to be the Labor Party. Oh, it's just ironic.
0: Yeah, that was a great one. Left his best. He did do a good job. So, as you guys know, and we didn't want to do it at the beginning, but we do it here at the end. If you are so inclined, patreon.com forward slash generational change. Firmware has been an amazing supporter on the yeah, show today. thank you so we much. We always appreciate the super chats, but of course... Monthly supporter of the show is always welcome. For as little as $5 a month, you can become a supporter. And that is at patreon.com forward slash generational change. But if you're feeling a little bit generous.
1: And you guys, I'm serious. This is, this will be like one of those things that I'm telling you, like in a hundred years, this will be worth so much money. And only very few people will understand the inside For $10 a joke.
0: month, you can have a mansion parliamentarian bumper sticker.
1: That is key. Because I think key. it is key. I think we should vote for the people with the most power. Hmm. That I just makes agree. sense, and you also will get the Lulu sticker, and twenty five dollars a month gets you generational change jersey. It's, it's a good one. It they're really cute. Yeah. Um, I get compliments actually on the shirt, and people don't even realize that it's like affiliated with anything. It's just it's really cute. On the back, it does say generational change, but it's not obnoxious.
0: But if you do not feel like giving up your personal information for months on end, and we all know a lot of people don't want to do that. Then feel free to go to Cash App dollar sign gen change, you can make a contribution right now. And that will be very appreciated. We certainly hope that you guys found this forum
1: called a forum. It's a forum, you know, really. And again, I got to just continue this. This can't be something that's a one-time event. It has to be something that we're constantly talking about because I feel like this, this is now somewhat of a mission for me because it is very important for Jewish people specifically jewish people to speak out about this um and i just i feel like now it is part of my mission to disassociate judaism from zionism and and just really make it clear that they're not the same thing yeah they're just not the same thing there are many many jews that are not zionists and there are many zionists that aren't jews oh yeah and and by the way those Zionists, they actually don't give a crap about the Jews. Um, They just need them all there for the rapture and whatnot. But so it's a very important topic. And I I, like everything else. I feel like it has to be dealt with with reason. Um, And we can't just start calling names and acting like a child throwing mud in the playground like our Congresswoman acts like a child. Well, that's just horrible. That's anti-Semitic. No, actually, it's a, it's a very valid criticism. And maybe if you were actually a real representative of people, you would want to have those kinds of dialogues and you would want to come to conclusions that were based on reason.
0: No, that would require her not to be a corporate sellout, but that's just not possible. And
1: so, guys, I, I, am, I am begging you. <laughs> I am begging you to just encourage encourage reason encourage use of reason. It's very like, and I will admit when I'm being unreasonable, but when I'm being unreasonable, it's just me, how I feel about something, but I wouldn't say we should dictate policy on it. Like that's the thing we can feel how we feel. And it doesn't always have to be reasonable. I personally won't drive German car. I just won't. I know it's unreasonable. I know that those companies, I know Ford has anti-Semitic background. I know it's completely unreasonable. But yet I just don't want to because it just wouldn't feel good to me. I just wouldn't like it. So I just don't I don't need to be reasonable because it's personal preference. But when we're talking about like Palestinians and Israel, we let's please let's be reasonable, please. And stop being so fear based and fear mongering and name calling. It's like it's just we're not going to get anywhere.
0: Fear keeps people in line. Well,
1: that's true.
0: And with that said,
1: I'm not scared of you anymore.
0: No,
1: I'm not. I've been scared of you for a very long time. By the way, shout out to Isan Lecky, And if she ever by any chance comes across this, although I think I could probably reach out to her somehow. Sure, I need to, um, this is something that even as far, I don't know if I ever told you that I had a conversation with her about this in 2019. And I was still in that mental gymnastics of saying we need a two state solution mindset. And she was basically telling me then, it's not really gonna work and i was all but then what would happen and da, 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 And all just very defensive and very knee-jerk and i i very much see the error of that so i anyway isan was very much like now that i look back on it exceptionally patient with me i would have throttled me maybe
0: so on monday night we will have jordan cheriton of status quo news who is going to again like margaret kimberly friend of the show Katie Halper and Ronnie Callick are friends of the show, so we have a we have a nice uh, group of we have nice supporters. friends, and so Jordan is going to come on to talk about the recent attempt, which hasn't been finalized yet, but the recent attempt by oh, another okay. another Amazon oh. labor union in Albany, New York, this time.
1: No, another effort by them to crush the one
0: that already exists. Bezos is pulling out all the stops to try to prevent this from happening. So Jordan's (laughs) gonna come on to talk about it, saying they're basically using the same intimidation tactics they used in Staten Island as well as Bessemer, Alabama. So they're They're not letting up. And of course, because we don't have labor laws in the United States, he's able to get away with this. Just remember, ladies and gentlemen, if we had a real all-time president right now, like a Teddy Roosevelt. Amazon would have been broken up a long time ago.
1: Yeah, and he'd still be massacring natives. I'm just saying, you know, it's like be careful what you wish for. Oh,
0: again, no one's perfect. No,
1: okay. Well, that's like the people that say, Israel's a democracy. They have healthcare. They, there's Palestinians participate in the government. Oh, yes, they keep a whole bunch of people, like in two million people in outdoor prison. Oh, bygones. You can do good that doesn't undo your bad.
0: No, there's, there's good and bad. So last but not least, our small business neighbor, who I'm going to have to call because I need new car insurance. There you go. Apex Insurance Agency, home, auto, and life insurance. You definitely want to give them a call because here in Florida, especially, supporting small business goes a lot further than supporting big business. Always. If your rates are not good, you definitely want to call a local supplier who will probably give you a much better rate.
1: They'll look out for you.
0: And they'll, they are much more of a good neighbor.
1: And they'll call you when something's a better deal. We actually had that. Now I can like I said, this this is new to us and I've had my people because I have a small business relationship with our people, but it's like they'll literally like call and be like, hey, we saw this this might be a better deal for you. Yeah. You get that with small business. So guys, if you if you are in the need for home, auto, or life, check out Apex. Cause why not?
0: I'm gonna give them a call. Maybe you will. Too. <laughs>
1: that's our we're we're getting corporate bought mm. we're being taken over
0: it's a great Simpsons episode with oh Krusty the God. Clown with Canyon Arrow if you haven't seen that one he becomes a corporate sellout what now you're it? talking about
1: two things I don't care about the Simpsons
0: or clowns yeah Krusty the Clown I don't know. are you still afraid of clowns I'm not
1: afraid of them
0: I just don't yeah. particularly care for them with that said we are very appreciative and of then what all do we have, we have on today? Wednesday Wednesday we are Happy, very well known in the YouTube content creating world, Roberto Blake. He is going to be coming on, sharing his thoughts about potentially how we can grow our channel really big and strong. You know,
1: but um, I mean, I would think we would also talk about things like censorship and the YouTube algorithm and yes, how literally. to get around all Maybe of that he knows stuff. all the secrets because it's a, the struggle is real, people. It the is. struggle is real, it's very real. So. Support our little channel. Wait, wait. We, I try to do really good, thought-provoking things. We definitely need to have the rabbi back on because there's wait. no way I took all these notes for nothing. No, you'll have them. All right. Because, like, I I even have color-coded
0: notes. We're also going to have Jamal Thomas on, which will probably be in about a week.
1: Jamal Thomas, I think, works exceptionally hard. He does? And, yeah. You got and the note, right? I did. Okay. And basically, he had texted us, like, 10 minutes before he was supposed to come on saying, hey, guys, I'll be there in a minute, whatever. And then he never came on. And we're like, that's so weird. And now we know that he fell asleep. He fell asleep. Yeah. Because he was probably, well, like, he's probably been up for however long to yeah. whatever. It's just... If that does not. And then when I saw that, I'm like, yeah, that doesn't surprise me.
0: Hopefully, we will have our good friend Mike Figueredo come back uh, sometime soon. Uh, we are looking to have Kim Iverson. I know you guys have. Uh,
1: I, you know what? I don't get the Kim Iverson
0: hate. Uh, I really don't. You'll you'll see. I don't. She see. I like tiff. him. She had a little tiff with uh, him. I like him. Kim. Yeah. Kim. Yes. Kim had a little tiff with uh, our friend Mike Figueredo recently. Maybe we can have them both on. That would be really cool. That would be impressive. I might be able to do that. Why not? Well, that would be a show.
1: Well, the truth is, I really like them. I do. And I think that ultimately they're that we're on the same mission.
0: We're trying to be.
1: Yeah. And I, well, the truth is, is that Kim does tend to be very libertarian. That's her prerogative. Like, she's allowed to be that way. She's a nice person. She's a good person. We don't have to agree with her and everything.
0: Dirtbag leftist. Here's all I'm going to say. Okay. whether you agree with the usage of ivermectin or not, that wasn't the issue. The issue was that corporate media in the Democratic side was saying that people were taking horse paste. And that's not true. So the fact that they kept perpetuating that narrative that people are injecting themselves with horse paste is a lie. It is a lie. And there would have been. Tens of thousands of dead people that we would have heard about as a result.
1: And by the way, Kim left rising for the same reason Katie just did
0: or isn't going back. Because she wasn't willing to be censored.
1: And that's see, that's integrity. And I've spoken with Kim on air, off air. I like her. I think she's very principled and she absolutely 100 percent does her homework. She does her research. She spends hours doing it. She really knows when she's talking about something, she's done the work. So you might not agree with her position, but she does the work and knows the facts. And also Kim is somebody who um, spent a pretty good amount of time traveling in the West Bank and spending a lot of time really researching this issue on Zionism in particular and was very clear on that for for a long time already.
0: And we'll leave on on this note. If you think you're ever getting anything like a living wage, universal health care, ending the wars, clean energy grid to save ourselves from runaway climate change. If you think you can exclude people like Kim Iverson from the conversation, good luck ever getting there.
1: Well, why would we want to? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just,
0: I'm just putting that out there. That to me is what it's all about. Yes, you're
1: right. She wasn't You're right. She wasn't censored in the way that Katie was censored, but she was censored in a way that they wanted her message not to be on the show. So it it was a matter of no, she she wasn't purposefully one piece being left off. But her viewpoint and her being on the show, when we know regardless of what you think about Kim, she's extremely professional. She's extremely civil. She's very well read and she's well spoken. So to censor someone like that is just incorrect. And I do feel the same about what they did to Katie, but it, it's censorship. It's censoring viewpoints that you don't agree with. It's not a good plan.
0: OK, and again, we'll agree to disagree. Just like you, dirtbag leftist, doesn't, don't, don't agree with, abor- with abortion. OK, that's fine. If that's what you believe, then that's fine. It's not your place to tell Jen that she is not allowed to control her body. Yeah. We live in a libertarian left society. If people have all the information, like if
1: people really want to see you want to you want to see when the moms demand action women actually start picking up their weapons. It's when you start coming after a reproductive rights like you want to really push women to that point. I mean, it's just yes. like people like we'll kill you. Like, seriously, like I'm not even being metaphorically like I absolutely like, are you kidding me? I am so done with I can't even with people talking about my bodily autonomy. I swear. I swear I'd kill people for that. Yeah. I'd actually kill people for opposing other people's bodily autonomy. So it's a big deal. Last thing,
0: And there's a reason why loyalty in politics probably means more than anything when it's about your actual principles and not loyalty to the almighty dollar to the party line. When you are loyal to to the actual growth of a movement and to the principles that matter, that's when you know you have you're you're starting to get somewhere because there are enough people that have attempted to try to knock Jen off her perch. They've there's the there's a jealousy component that is in there, but but never forget that Andrew Yang had the best line. I can agree with progressives on 20 things, but if the 21st thing is wrong, then I am finished. And that is a big problem within a lot of these circles. You might agree with Kim or a number of other people. Right.
1: She does not purposefully spread misinformation. Absolutely not. Yep. She does way too much research and is very specific about what she does. They, she specifically asks, does not do said, that. they
0: specifically said that the vaccine stops the spread. As it turns out, it was a lie. And I always thought it was We a always lie. thought that. By the and way, so precious
1: image, you should really go back. I, I don't remember. It was probably like, we're talking a couple of years ago already. But if you go back and look at some of Kim's old videos, because she did an entire, like a few shows, she broke it up yeah. um, with her trip over to, to Israel. And she did a really good job. I, I mean, that was one of the early on things when I'm like, okay, she's got it going on. So you might not like her opinion, yeah. but she does not purposefully spread misinformation. She's extremely well-read and smart. And you just don't like what she's saying. That's 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 just not. And in this
0: world, we're going to have to accept the fact that Kim agrees with a lot of the policies that we're fighting for. Absolutely. That is what you have to realize that, again, Kim Iverson may be friendly with the likes of, let's say, even a Ben Shapiro or a Stephen Crowder. We're not trying to get people like that because people like that have their agenda, which has nothing to do with working class uh, economics. So or why does that make benefit? us kick
1: her out on when we agree with her on 9 out of 10 things? Here, Look, Kim Iverson believes in the class war and she's on our side.
0: Tim Pool is the same thing.
1: Like you guys are not understanding that you can find allies in places when you stop looking at every little thing that somebody says and you find people that are in your class solidarity. That's what this is. The
0: second people started saying that people were injecting themselves with horse paste, At that point, I said, well, that's not my that's not an ally. That is not an ally. That is an enemy, because those people may not say that they're against universal health care and a living wage, but they'll find every excuse to say it's not possible. And that is where we have to get serious about whether or not we're really trying to get where we're trying to get. You have to put your feelings aside and recognize that this is a fight much bigger than our own individual desires. There is something. That can really, you know, again, we can get where we want to go, but we have to recognize that <clears throat> these conversations like we had today is necessary. And having relationships with people that we don't always agree with are necessary
1: because there's well, no other way. I actually kind of just like them. Why can't sure. I just like them? I Tim Poole was nice. He was a nice guy to hang out with. His group was fun. Like, it, they're nice. I don't have to agree with him. I don't have to know what his... Motives or intentions are. He's a content creator on YouTube. He's and it, Paul. It's like people,
0: just people. And Paul, you bring up a really great point, and that is why. And I think we could when we I really want to eat. <laughs> I haven't eaten all day. I'm like, I'm like on adrenaline. And here's and here's the bottom line about the podcast content creator who will not be named. Please don't. That particular person has no interest in actually fixing the problem. They may like to point out problems and they're correct about them, but to actually take action and do what is necessary to fix Sam's problems, they're not gonna do it because it's not financially beneficial to them to do it. That's a lot of people, by
2: the way. Absolutely, but that one
0: particular person who people still think is really fighting on their behalf, he's not at all. I
1: don't even see any of that stuff anymore. I have a whole different feed now, it's so interesting. Mm I have all different. I have all different people. Like I watch Reset Race. I watch Black Agenda Report. I watch um, Breakthrough News. I watch uh, Mike Figueredo. And Dirtbag Leftist,
0: that is where you and I and probably Jen, too, disagree.
1: Mm, No, because Kim is really like she does journalist work. She actually does journalist work. Um, He doesn't. So it's not, right, like that, you're really apples and oranges. Like if he ever traveled over to like Gaza and did like a two-week expose or whatever like Max Blumenthal did or, or traveled through the West Bank and do all that like Kim, or actually spent hours and hours a day doing research on these topics, then maybe, but I just don't think he's doing
0: it. For those of you who haven't seen it, and I will always remind people who always <laughs> want to know, check out the video of what we did about a year and a half ago, which explained exactly what that podcaster did when he came down here to Florida and had an opportunity to it was about two years ago to give Jen a boost and decided no I'm not doing that not worth it that's
1: not somebody who's trying to help the solution like you know what I mean like that's not somebody who's on a mission that's somebody who's on a mission for themselves
2: yeah
1: and we just like a lot of people are like that just like
0: just like Tulsi Gabbard Tulsi Gabbard is not on a mission to solve the problems of the United States, first and foremost. She is on a mission to get as much money out of this as she possibly can. That is a fact. Look at what she look at how she did what she did, and look at who she is currently supporting in politics. It is it, again, <clears throat> if you can figure out a way to make the money, I guess good for you. I guess for me is on a mission.
1: Why, why are you in this? And what are you about as a person? And are you really trying to help people? Are you really trying to, like, what are you really doing? Right, right? which is what I say is your mission. And I think that that's really noticed for some people. And it is for me in particular, like I have my content creator list has changed significantly. Like I still have Bo because God, what would I do without that? Um, And, you know, it's getting smaller and smaller because more and more people are just using their soapbox for like their little vanity projects and they're not really, they're not helping. We gotta get
0: serious, people.
1: They're not helping. Time to get serious. They're just, it's like, if all you're doing, like we spend a lot of time criticizing Democrats and pointing out the problems. We spend no short, like we spend plenty of time doing that, but we spend most of our time talking with people about solutions to the problems. We spend most of our time talking with authors or experts or historians or people where we're trying to really help people come to solutions, right? Like that's what we're really trying to do. And so, yeah, we point out problems, but we're all, we're offering solutions. And I think that that is, I think that's a big distinction. And a lot of those people are, they're not trying to get to solutions. They just want to fucking bitch. And
0: on that note, Jordan is going to have a, probably a rant, if you will, on Monday about that because it appears that we're one of the only people who is asked to have him on regarding <laughs> what's going on with the Amazon We workers always in are.
1: You and he and you both say this like this is somehow a new phenomenon.
0: No, it's not. It just goes to show you he who knows, gives a damn about what matters and who doesn't because this is what matters. What's happening to the Amazon workers in Albany is a reflection of Bezos doing everything in his power to stop a unionized movement for Amazon throughout the United States. You think that's bad? You wait until the Waltons sink their teeth into Walmart workers who are going to eventually attempt to do the same thing. It'll be even worse.
1: I just had a really interesting sort of like analogy or metaphor in my head. So it's like union, like labor, they're the bees, right? They're the bees. And those guys don't want to deal with the bees. But the problem is. We die without the bees. We yeah. need the bees. So if you want to get rid of the bees so that you don't get stung, we're all we can't live. So you gotta live with the bees.
0: That's why we dig you, Steve, and we appreciate all that you do. And hopefully, everybody recognizes. Absolutely. You. So gotta ask yourself. Jen brought up a great point, and let's leave on that note. Why are you in this? What is your motivation? Because if your motivation is just to you know, again, not talking about any particular channel, but once I just constantly want to talk about other content creators and other fighting that's going on constantly, no, there is some time again, that's not getting us where we need to go. If you want to help us get us where we need to go, then recognize that there's got to be a reason why you're here. Figure that out. We'll see you Monday.
1: Bye all.